Hi listeners, this is Glenn with Infants on Thrones. Just wanted to let you know I am re-releasing today an interview that I did last year. This was released in February of 2021, an interview with Steve Urquhart, who was the founder of the Divine Assembly, which was recently featured in Rolling Stone magazine. And so I thought there might be people out there who's looking to find out a little bit more about Steve, who he is, what he's done. And uh, so... Here you go. Here's four hours where Steve talks about who he is, what he's done, and this uh, amazing perspective that he has on life. We'll leave it at that and uh, get to the interview. Thank you for tuning in to Infants on Thrones. I think that we're born spiritual creatures which is a deep abiding love of other humans, of nature, a oneness with nature and with other people, a patience, accepting of everyone and everything. And we often have something that chases that out of us. Chases that out of us. You know, plant medicine has given me a lot more compassion. 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 We start to see our own mortality. Death is coming. And we look back and like, what did I learn from this amazing lesson? Because I do believe whatever energy we've created here, we are taking that experience to the next experience, whatever that is, whatever energy burst I am. Whatever energy burst I am. I only realized in the last two years that uh, I've been sexist as fuck. Sexist as fuck. I was in a mushroom ceremony two weeks later and I saw these amazing lights. I'd never seen anything like it, so it was extraordinary. But then I realized that it was familiar, that I knew exactly what it was. In this space where we go, this mystical state of consciousness, I'm like, how can this be that I've never seen anything this amazing, yet I know what this is? And then I realized that I was looking at my wife and that I know her, I know her very well, yet I don't know her at all. Sexist as fuck. I haven't seen her in many ways. And, you know, what I kind of realized is that she's Johnny Carson and I'm Ed McMahon. (laughs) (laughs) I I thought it was the other way around. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion to? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy anything this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone welcome back to infants on thrones i'm glenn ostland and this is episode 708 
Magic Mushrooms, Utah Senator Steve Urquhart, and The Divine Assembly, Part 1. Now today I'm joined once again by Christine Stenquist, who I interviewed a few months ago about her incredible life story and her experience working for the legalization of medical cannabis in Utah. In that interview, Christine talked about the role that psychedelics like magic mushrooms have recently played in helping her find a greater peace of mind. She also mentioned her friend and fellow crusader, former Utah Senator Steve Urquhart, who recently started a psilocybin church in Utah. So over the next three episodes, Christine and I will be talking with Steve about his story, how he rediscovered his own love for life, his own spirituality, and why he started a new church around a psychedelic sacrament. You're also going to hear a pretty passionate soapbox speech from me at the end of today's episode, so I hope you listen all the way to the end. And we start off by getting Steve's reaction to the interview that I did with Christine. He was driving back from California to Utah and got so emotional that he had to pull over on the side of the road. But don't just take it from me. Take a listen for yourself. Okay. Is everything all right? Yeah, I was just telling about my drive yesterday. Ah, how was it? Well, I'm telling telling about the part of just having to pull over and cry. It was it was contemplative. Let's say it was a contemplative drive. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What 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 kind of thoughts came into your mind as you were listening? Well, just my my love for Christine, my awe for Christine, and you know. I mean, I see her uh, as just the most amazing political figure of my life, which means, you know, an amazing human and, uh, you know, beautiful soul, courageous, strong. But, you know, her story, um, I don't know anything like it. You know, I don't know personally Aaron Brockovich. I don't know. You know, and I know Mr. Smith goes to Washington, was fiction. Um, but, you know, I, I know of her heroism and uh, her strength in, in fighting. But, you know, uh, I knew some of the details, a lot of the details of her story. But I didn't know. I hadn't heard it laid out like that. And, um uh, that's just fucked up. Just yeah. fucked up. If you if you were going to turn Christine's story into like an Aaron Brockovich type story, I mean, clearly we've we've got Christine cast in the role of the protagonist, the hero. What what's the antagonist? What where where is the fucked upness coming from? In in well, her story, who is that? Well, I think you know if I were to tell her story. Um, you know, she, she beat the Mormon church in Utah and that's, you know, this is, this is David and Goliath. I mean, this is Christine and Goliath. Uh, That's always a big story. And so I think that's the story is um, how does someone do this? And part of the way someone does it is they probably haven't, walked an easy path to get to that point. I mean, Christine, uh, you know, has been in the depths of hell, has, has faced just the ugliness of life and survived it. And so, you know, I guess that's a 
that's a big part of the story. Cause I, you know, I, I've looked at Christine, I'm like, how does she do this? How does she, and now I know a little more how and why, because after, after what she lived, Mormon church isn't going to scare her, you know, a bunch of powerful political insiders aren't going to scare her. Yeah. You know, so what do you think as you hear this, Christine? Oh, go ahead and finish your thoughts, Steve. I mean, it, 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 it obviously was a hellacious path to walk, but I think only having walked that path, can someone just be that mentally, spiritually, emotionally tough to take down the church on a big one that it threw everything it had at. So my question to you, Christine, how how do you respond when you hear Steve saying that? Like I told him before, when he describes me, I always say, God, I want to meet that person. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Because it, um, when you live your life, you don't, I just didn't think my story was unique. I didn't think it was unique. I think we all have these trials that we go through and we all are very quiet about the trials we've experienced. And I just was very quiet about kind of the traumas I've, I've experienced that led me to here. And um, it wasn't, it wasn't till going up against such an entity as powerful as, as the, the LDS church but also the government, the legislative body, the people that empower in my state, the people that run the health departments that run our, you know, our agriculture, like going up against people that um, I see why, why and how my path led me through some, some of those difficult challenges. Yeah. It, um, I think if I had a, a uh, blessed life where I didn't have trials and tribulations, I would have given up the first time a legislator said, Oh, that's nice little girl. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen here in Utah. Um, I, I would have said, Oh, Oh, you're right. And, and I've gone back home, but I lived for so long. Oh, oh, you're, you're right. Wise Senator Urquhart. That's right. <laughs> Those, um, I did say that to, to Senator Urquhart, you know, I think that this is the, the path we were going before I got on this call. I was on a call with um, some allies who were with me and we were talking about the two entities that are at odds messaging wise in our community. And it is the government and those who want to do incremental steps and those who want to do what's right. And I very much reside in the sphere of those who want to do what's right. I don't think we should trickle bliss and happiness and comfort to people at the profit of corporations and, and power and those that are, um, are pulling the puppet strings. And that's what I saw the, the LDS church is trickling happiness. I feel like that with religion though, is that they, they trickle out happiness and bliss. If you do this precept, if you do this concept and learn this principle, you will attain this forever after, but only when you die. And I just don't believe that that's the way it should be. I think we should do, be doing what's right. And that's why I kept fighting. I just kept fighting is that's what's right. Um, yeah. You know, and so to back to your question of what, how to tell the story, I think I'd, sh- you know, show, show the specifics of Christine beating the Mormon church um, and then just kind of do a massive flashback of what makes someone 
this courageous, this strong, this tough. Yeah. Because I'll be honest, I didn't have those feelings about the church. I, I, like Steve, I'm a convert. And so I was like 10 years old when I came to the church. It was my mother's faith, and she has a history and deep roots in Utah. She was born in Ogden. Um, when I was 10, I was introduced to the church, and I always felt I was spiritual as a kid, too, because um, I used to ask my dad why we didn't go to church or when we would go, and then he made sure we went. You know, we were always going on the important holidays, Christmas and Easter, but he wasn't a very spiritual guy. And so being the only girl being raised by a cop and my brother, I, I think I was just more sensitive. So when I was introduced to the church, it appealed to me, this, this family is forever kind of concept. And I really cleaved to it. I wanted this. And when I moved to Utah and saw kind of up close and personal with the church, it, it's not... It, it's not the marketing that I was shown as a kid growing up in the 70s and the 80s about what the church looked like. So mm. it, it it changed for me. I started to see the church as a power, another puppet master over people, just like politics was. And that's really when I developed a disdain for yeah. for the role that they play in people's lives. You know. Yeah. Well, Steve, I... I... Christine mentioned a couple of things, uh, one that you were a convert, and then she also talked about the spiritual uh, appeal of the teachings of the Mormon church um, when, when she was a convert. And I know that's something that you want to talk about, Steve, is spirituality, and, and right. I didn't know that you were a convert. So, um, you know, but before, before we really set up the Mormon church as the big bad guy that, <laughs> because I know, mm -hmm. you know, you're, both of you have fought against the Mormon church in political arenas and won in the state of Utah, which is amazing. Um, yep. But so let's, let's set that up. What, how, how did it get to that point? How did you get involved in the Mormon church to start off with Steve? And what was your relationship with it? So Christine and I joined at the same age. I was 10, she was 10, 11. Um, and you so, were in Texas? Yeah, I was in Houston. Yeah. So, you know, my family was dysfunctional um, and just really bad at communication, as in not even ever trying. And uh, so, you know, my parents hated each other by the time I was born. Um, my uh, father found the love of his life the year I was born and it was not my mother. And, um, so they, uh, you know, my parents, they didn't get divorced until I went away to college. Cause they, wow. That's a long they time thought to they were, live like that. Yeah. Yeah. And he wasn't around much. And, uh, you know, my first day of school, my senior year, I, got in a fight and he wanted to parent. And at that point, my brother had gone, he had just gone away to college, my just older than me brother. And uh, uh, without that buffer, you know, my dad and I didn't know what to do with each other. And so he wanted to father that day. And uh, I just told him, I said, you know what, I think you need to move. You just need to get out of here. And uh, mm -hmm. To his credit, he did. Um, 
but so, so let me let me let me see if I can get the timeline straight. And by the way, Chris, Christine, feel free to jump in at any point. I mean, we're having a, a free conversation here. You don't need to like be respectful and defer to me or anything. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, so so your parents started having issues. They hated each other when you were born. Your dad found the love of his life. You joined the Mormon Church when you were ten. Fill me in on what happened between your mom and dad and your family from age zero to age 10. That Was it your mom that joined the church, your dad that joined the church? Yeah. Well, How did that happen? I'm, I'm first telling you the lack of communication. So they got divorced when I went away to college. And so I came home uh, for Thanksgiving and uh, uh, I'm like, you know, where's, where's dad? And uh, so my brother or no, I didn't. So just my brother was there. And so a girlfriend and I, he was asleep. We came in and we uh, got some warm water and we we're going to put it, we were putting his hand in the warm water, just the old method, see if he would pee his bed. And so he, Did you ask uh, your dad, no, to my brother, Oh, to your brother. Okay. And uh, <laughs> so he, uh, he just said, look, take Susan home and come back. And I'm like, Whoa, that's pretty grumpy. And he said, just take her home and come back. So, you know, I came back home. I'm like, what? And he said, mom and dad got divorced. And uh, when you went away to college and I'm like, oh, and he's like, yeah, see you in the morning. So that's, that's were they living. Well. Were they living in the same house that whole time? No, no, no. I mean, they he was episodically there, you know, just kind of. I imagine during this, we'll talk about dad. He's someone who he he tried his best. Well, here's the thing. He's a lot like me. Or I, I realized with a lot of my mess as I left the Mormon church, I'm a lot like him. So mm. I didn't understand him until I started to fall apart. Mm. And it gave me, you know, plant medicine has given me a lot more compassion for him. He was he was a mess. I mean, he was he was, you know, a, a moron genius and uh uh, you know, just had, had a lot of demons. So anyways, that's the backdrop is, you know, they didn't like each other. They were dysfunctional, both, I think, very sad and depressed. And then, uh, my 19 year old brother killed himself when, when I was six. Mm. And, um, so that really rocked things further. I think my mom crawled in the grave with him in a lot of ways. And so, we obviously needed something. They realized that they were failing as parents. And, uh, uh, you know, some along came some neighbors who uh, my brother and I really liked. They were athletes. We were athletes and they were Mormon and uh, they were stable and they started inviting us to their church. And um, the thing that got me is uh, so I have. I have a photographic memory. And so they hate, they had the blazer chart and uh, you know, we were kind of poor. We didn't have shit. And so they had this beautiful blazer chart with these cool buttons that you could put on it. Like just like a this? felt, like a felt board that they were telling their, their missionary stories on. No, it was the articles of faith. And so they were listed. Oh, yeah. How old are you, Glenn? 48, almost 49. Okay, so, so I was, I was so born in '72. Yeah, so I was '65. You should know this. I mean, I think it was yeah. still around. 
it was the blazer chart. So it was kind of, it wasn't even that nice. It was kind of plasticky, but those buttons were cool as anything. And then down at the bottom, you got these little bronze looking things. So I'm like, shit, I want one of these. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, what do you got to do? And they said, well, you have to memorize these things. I'm like, well, shit, I can memorize. And so, you know, <laughs> that day I like memorized it. I'm like, I want my chart. And uh, so I guess that was it. I remember in primary having to stand up and recite the Articles of Faith. Yeah. Do you guys yeah. remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what you're referring to, right, Steve? Yeah, the Articles of Faith. And uh, I, see, I don't remember a blazer chart. I, I, I remember things like CTR rings and, <laughs> uh, you know, but in, in, the, in the scouting program, that mm -hmm. was kind of the biggest thing like oh i want to get this merit badge or i want to get this skill award or you know whatever mm -hmm. there were always those kinds of pavlovian rewards <laughs> that were being offered yeah at that, at that point um so we would go to like i guess it was primary so we go to something with them during the week and play games and they gave popsicles and yeah. so i'm like shit man you get cool charts and you get popsicles <laughs> what could i like be this church this? <laughs> yeah and yeah. uh so anyways it was uh i'm i'm profoundly grateful to the mormon church um for a lot of things and one is it if i don't know what my life would be like without it in terms of you know as as a kid I needed some stable adults to pay attention mm -hmm. to. And there were some really fine adults mm -hmm. who did that and uh, cared about me and cared for me. And then just some really great people that I got to grow up with in the church. And so there's so much I like about the church, just, you know, a lot of the social structure and the, the more community. Stability. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The stability it provided for me. Now, I think, I think John DeLynn grew up in Houston, didn't he? Did, did you know the DeLynns? I did. I, I knew of John mostly. He was a little further out in the sticks. He, sure. was, uh, he was out in Katy. And uh, yeah, I was, I was in Houston, which now, which now they're connected. I mean, you know, it's just all the sprawl of Houston. Yeah. yeah. So, so you had, and, and I, I guess anytime we talk about the Mormon church, that there's, there's this term that I learned when I was in graduate school called reification. And, and reification means that you take an abstract idea and you treat it like it's something that's real, like yeah. America. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right. Thing. And, thingification. That's what the yeah, word thing, is. Thingification, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so, like, when you're talking about the Mormon church, there's sometimes where we're talking about uh, a set of teachings uh, or a set of beliefs. <laughs> There's times that we're talking about like a local congregation and people there. There's times we're talking about like the first presidency and the quorum of the 12 and that whole power structure. There's times where you're talking about the political stuff. So I, I don't know how to get around that to be really clear when we're talking about the Mormon. So it doesn't get lumped into this, like all one big amorphous thing. Uh, is that really even important to make those distinctions? What do you think? When, when I did, our advocacy here in Utah, because we did bump into this sort of the theocracy, you know, the gospel of the church and then LDS Inc. And that's what we hashtagged when we dealt with the church in the political arena. 
I was dealing with LDS Inc. And you were like specifically like Marty Stevens. The lobbyist. I was dealing. Look, if you're going to play in the political arena, you're going to take the shots on the chin like everybody else. And that's how I treated the church. And they but they wanted to play both sides. They wanted to play. They they took their political message to the pulpit, which I felt was wrong and, and completely inappropriate. When Marty Stevens is at the pulpit manipulating his position of power to tell people how to vote or not vote on something, especially something that affects people's health. And he is not a a physician. I I felt that was extremely inappropriate. And especially since they don't have the knowledge on this particular issue or topic, um, I I don't think there's anything wrong with them counseling their, their congregation. But the overstep of having bishops, whether bishops were directly um, told to, to organize people to have signatures removed off the ballot initiatives or what it was happening. And relief society lists were being used for political reasons. And to me, that was absolutely inappropriate when the church is dictating how some of this stuff works. So it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of, uh, influence <laughs> but but that's that that was the LD. then there was the other side that steve talks about that i feel and, and i had a wonderful ward that i grew up in um elder bednar was my bishop he was my state president i grew up in fayetteville arkansas during during those really my years in mutual and where i found some really strong bonds and like steve i don't know where i would have been in high school if I hadn't had that, I yeah. didn't get caught up in drugs and drinking and, and being promiscuous or anything. it just wasn't part of my world. Um, it, Cause I was so dived into the church and what was going on there and being part of mutual and going to seminary. Cause growing up in the mission field, going to seminary means you woke up and you were at the church at six 30 in the freaking morning, um, listening to somebody talk about, you know, the gospels. So there was a dedication for me as a teen towards the church um, that I think I appreciated when I was young um, because I think it did keep me a little safe from yeah. some situations. Well, and let's let's talk about the spirituality part of this too, because you know, Steve, like your your appeal to the Mormon Church, you mentioned the charts, the popsicles, but when we <laughs> talked yesterday, you also said that as a kid you were very spiritual and yes. so you in in this unbalanced family environment that you're describing what what did spiritual what was that like so you know that's something that i look back in retrospect as an adult and recognize my innate spirituality and what it was at the time was just being human. I think that we're born spiritual creatures and we have, we often have something that uh, chases that out of us. And for me, I really do think it was the Mormon church that chased it away. Um, when you say spiritual, uh, okay, what, what, can you give me some examples so that I can know like what you mean when you're talking, when you're using that word spiritual? Yeah, it's something that I'm just now starting to reclaim, which is a love, a deep abiding love of other humans, of nature, a oneness 
with nature and with other people, um, a patience for other people. Um, I mean, I really was a loving, loving kid, accepting of everyone and everything. Um, just feeling great compassion for people who are struggling. And then when I'm 10, I adopted a paradigm that I really don't think is very loving, which is interesting because I dig Mormons. I really dig ex-Mormons. And so there clearly are some good teachings there. I think that Mormons are really are good people. Um, but the doctrine, it's pretty fucked up. I mean, uh, you know, Christine and her podcast talked about learning that her dad was going to hell and, and it just it was traumatic. And so not only was my dad gone to hell because, you know, we joined partially and, you know, my brothers were going to hell, you know, one brother joined and my mother and, you know, it was pretty clear teaching then that suicide, you had screwed up your probationary period and he was going to hell. Right. And so, you know, what am I clinging to? I mean, I'm in the sea drowning, so I'm clinging to a buoy that's telling me people around me are going to hell. And I'm in Houston. I'm, I'm like one of very few Mormon kids in my school growing up, you know, every grade level. Well, they're all going to hell. Well, no, they have the chance in the afterlife, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, everyone around me is on the wrong path. It is such an arrogant, <laughs> crazy way to, to look at the world that everyone around you is wrong. Yeah. Everyone around you is screwing up, that the things they're doing are trivial, meaningless. And so, you know, you as humans, we adopt the stuff we hear, the stuff we're taught. And so, you know, I lost that love for everyone and everything around me because it was all wrong, right? I mean, even this earth itself, we're taught that it used to be awesome, but now it's in degraded, fallen state. And, uh, you know, and then the bit about if you're going to go to heaven, if you're going to get your reward, it's not really about being a good person. It's about doing certain things, not doing other things. And, uh, you know, you drink a Dr. Pepper and well, you might not go. And all of, all of these crazy rules and rituals. And so, you know, now dogma to me is anathema. I just yeah. can't stand it. Anytime anyone wants to suggest that I live according to their dogma, I just have this visceral reaction against it. Yeah. Yeah. I find it really ironic. I mean, there, there's several things about the, the, the teachings in the Mormon church that I found ir ironic, but probably the biggest is the story of the Ramiumptum in the book of Mormon, yeah. with the Zoramites, you know, I mean, here, here's this story that was written into a book of Mormon, probably 1830 by Joseph Smith about this group of people that used to get up on this, that stand behind a pulpit and that brag about how we are the most chosen of all the people. Thank you, God, for making us better than everybody else around us. 
and you know they're wearing all the best clothes they're driving all the best cars i mean they weren't driving cars back then you know they would have been you know those zormites would have been in their mercedes and oh, absolutely. you know and and uh fast forward from 1830 to salt lake today i mean it's you've got that ramiumptum in every single chapel and you've got that attitude that I that that was one of the things that really turned me off about the Mormon church as well Steve is is like I I don't want to be conditioned every it's not even every Sunday it's like every single day where I'm reading scriptures and doing prayers and this to think that I'm better than other people around me I just got so sick and tired of that that's hard to get out of like once like recognizing that was in me and going I, I don't want that in me anymore that's a hard one. That's, it's, a, that's it's, a lifetime battle. You know, we're the standard is to be perfect. Humans aren't perfect. So right. gives us all of this guilt. I think that, you know, it's tough, almost impossible to live the religion and be fully human. Um, I think that it just bashes out the humanity and replaces it with shame. Well, with shame and delusion, uh, I mean, it's really, really sad. And I think that's part of the reason why ex-Mormons are just some of my very favorite people, because, okay, we grew up in a cult. We have the commonality of that. And then we, you know, figure out some escape route. Uh, But then, you know, to look back, there's you there. There are different kinds of folks who. uh, different stages maybe ways people get out of the church and some of it is they just stop going but they're still very mormon in all of their thoughts yeah all of their thinking they they look for some other form of uh dogma that they can adhere to um then there are folks who they still are very worried about what the mormon church thinks about them what they're doing but then you know there's a point where there's for a lot of folks, uh, reflection where people are like, God, I thought some really crazy things that led me to be bad in a lot of ways. I need to heal. I need to heal people around me. And, you know, I, I like people who have walked a hard path and anyone who's done that, they've walked a long and hard path. I mean, I'll give you mine. I, I only realized, um, in the last two years that uh i've i've been sexist as fuck um you know very patriarchal patriarchal misogynistic now i would have denied that i would have pointed to different things no what do you mean but uh i did not see or value women um and it just, just feels so awful to admit but i you know, that that's a personal failing, but also that's ingrained. That's taught. I mean, the role of men and women in the church, it is not the same. And I think no one would say it's the same. And I think it's clearly fact that one of those roles is superior than the other. Yeah. In, in what in what ways can you can you get a little bit specific about your particular flavor of misogyny? Uh, yeah, I mean, not, not too long ago, 
um, a couple months ago, I was listing listing my favorite 10 albums, hmm. my favorite 10 books. They were all men. I mean, all 20 for 20. And so it's just things like that where I'm like, I have nothing against Chrissy Hine. I have nothing, you know, against Stevie Nicks. I have nothing against, you know, but, but all my attention went to men. I think men have the valuable things to say, the valuable insights. Well, no, that doesn't, that's nothing against women. It's do you disagree that these men have wonderful music, wonderful things to say. And so, you know, now, uh, I'm just putting forth the effort of, you know, half the books I read, uh, at least half, I want them to be written by women. Um, I won't speak on panels if it's all men. Um, so I'm just trying to see the world better and less misogynistically. Well, I'm glad we have Christi Christine here. And I didn't even do that on purpose. <laughs> well, I mean, I did it on purpose, but I didn't do it on purpose for that reason. But it's but it's true what Steve is saving, and I think it's it's a global thing. Though yeah. we no. don't we don't respect the divine feminine, and yeah. we have uh, men have written history that that women are here to serve, and that's definitely not that's not what the divine tells me. That's certainly not what the divine tells me. I also on the op opposite end of that. I am not one who is, um, I don't hate men. It's, it so often feels like that, you know, in order to be a feminist that you have to, you know, hate men. And I really don't like the negative narrative because I have three sons and yeah. I want my boys to feel loved and cherished by women and respected just as much as I want them to love and cherish and respect women. I think that the sexes need to identify the value in each other it's yeah. so important it's so so important as as we move forward in history that we don't look at one as higher or lower than the other that as partners that we are you know we each bring so much to any given situation yeah and so yeah and and so what what i'm hearing both of you say really is that we we carry around in our minds these attitudes, these ideas, these feelings, um, whether it's, uh, you know, we're better than other people because we have the gospel or men are better than women because of the priesthood and the patriarchal culture. But, but these are things that we carry inside of us and it filters the way that we see the world. It, it, it impacts the way that we interact with other people in the world. And what you've done is recognize, oh, I've got this, <laughs> this filter that is my mind that I want to change. I, yeah. I was I was thinking about it this morning as I was making the bed and you know you know how you make the bed and there'll be like a couple of places where there's wrinkles and so you go over and you smooth it out because you want to have a nice clean like how many of those wrinkles and just like bunched up stuff shit do I have in my mind <laughs> that is whether it's misogyny or racism or you know like anything where I'm I'm thinking bad about myself or bad about other people and it's unfair and I could just like can I just smooth that out so that um, I don't have that inter interfering with the way that I see the world and what the world means to me. Okay, Glenn, Glenn, on this, uh, this Zoom call, I will show you your mind. 
<laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it right there. That bed. <laughs> but you're you're laying on the nice made bed, are you not, Steve? That's yeah. That's the beauty of a, a hotel room with two beds, and I'm staying here two nights. Yeah. Oh. I just put out the do not disturb. I'm working in here, and I'll sleep on this bed tonight. <laughs> and let so, somebody else let 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 the maids make it tomorrow. All right. Yeah. So so here's here's here was kind of my path to starting to see women. Um, so. Sarah, my wife and I, we were out with uh, with Courtney Clark Kendrick, so C. Jane of blogging fame. Um, so they were talking about something. So I said some smart ass comment. And so Courtney, she looked at me and she said, Steve, you don't even see me. Mm. And then just kept kept talking with Sarah. And I'm like. What? You know, because because I know that Courtney loves me and cares deeply about me, but I had interrupted their conversation with my smart ass. And so she she just bluntly because she is blunt. That's part of the reason I love her. She's like, Steve, you don't even see me. And I'm like, but I do. You're amazing. You amaze me. But, you know, I just sat with that. Uh, I didn't want to argue with her because I could tell the way she said it, I was going to lose that one that I needed to, (laughs) I needed to do some thinking. And then I was in a mushroom ceremony two weeks later and I saw these amazing lights and it was the most amazing light show I had ever seen. And I'd never seen anything like it. So it was extraordinary. But then I realized that it was familiar, that I knew exactly what it was. Um, And so, you know, in this space where we go, this mystical state of consciousness, I'm like, how can this be that I've never seen anything this amazing, yet I know what this is? And then I realized it's Sarah, Mm -hmm. that I was looking at my wife Mm -hmm. and that I know her. I know her very well, yet I don't know her at all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is in in the last year, last two years. And so, you know, I came home and uh, someone drove me home and I was still kind of in the medicine. And so she loves when she gets secondhand smoke when I'm in the medicine. And so what I'll do is I'll just come, I'll, I'll just walk in the room and just lay on her and we'll Mm. just be nose to nose while we talk. Yeah. And so I'm telling her all of this and uh, you know, she's, she's crying because she hasn't felt, you know, she loves me and I treat her well. Well, I guess we'll get into this other than when I'm cheating behind her back and breaking her heart. But, um, you know, she knows that I value her, but yet she sees what I hadn't seen, how true this is that I haven't seen her in many ways. And, you know, what I kind of realized is, that she's Johnny Carson and I'm Ed McMahon. <laughs> I thought it was yes. the other way around. <laughs> That's a great. So it's, it's been super fun to get to know her and just, just to, you know, I imagine we're going to get into my deception and all of that. And the thing is, I was afraid of her and that's mm. because I didn't, know her and and was probably treating her like she was my mom or something and so 
it's just been awesome to get to know her and to stand independently, autonomously, yeah. you know, respect her that she might have a negative reaction to whatever I'm saying or doing, but I love her. She loves me. Let's figure out what we should do about this. So, you know, that was the start is CJ and Courtney just bluntly saying, Steve, you don't see me. And I'm like, damn, if right or wrong for her to think that I'm doing something wrong. I appreciate her courage in, in telling me that. But then to see, wow, even even my own wife, I've been missing the show that a lot of these revelations I get. That's hard to take. You know, I'm 50 at that time. I'm 54 years old and I haven't even seen my wife that I've been married to for 30 years. That's a pretty shallow human being. But I was Steve and I had talked about this. I think, honestly, this is something that happens to all of us human beings. We get told what is priority and what is important. And we aren't told and encouraged to have deeper connection with ourselves. So much emphasis, at least for me, was my role in my existence in life was to support my priesthood holder, my my husband. That's the whole reason why I was was alive. There was no emphasis on, on my bliss and happiness and what that really means and and when you find that yourself, then you get to, to really connect with other people. And Steve, I think none of us put our all into those connections because we're dr- dragged from thing to thing. This is important. This is important. you got to pay attention to this and don't forget about this. And are you being the best dad? Are you being the best employee? Are you being the best coworker? You know, you have all these titles and and labels that are put on you that you have expectations to live up to i can see very easily how human beings get distracted and lost into what is important i think that's why we grasp towards religion and and spirituality and finding the that that source in us that can can ground us again so we find those deeper connections because i think as we age in life and maybe those who are are gifted to, to understand this younger we start to say our own mortality. We yeah. see that death is coming. And we look back and like, what did I learn from this amazing lesson? Because I do believe whatever energy we've created here, we are taking that experience to the next experience, whatever that is, yeah. whatever energy burst I am. Um, and we get reflective about this. Hmm. You know? We get reflective. Yeah. Yeah. So, so playing off of that, back to your question, Glenn, of what does it mean to be spiritual? What do I mean when I say it killed my spirituality? It's, it's the word that Christine used there, deeper depth. I think to be spiritual, it just means that we, when the universe sings, we vibrate, Mm. that we pick up on that vibration. We vibrate with the universe. And obviously I wasn't vibrating with C. Jane, who is amazing. I wasn't vibrating with my wife, who is tremendous. I wasn't vibrating probably with any woman on the planet. Um, you know, that's a, you cannot say you're spiritual if, if that's the case. And so to me, I think as a kid, I just vibrated with the good in the world around me. Look for the good in everything. And then when I was 10 years old, I got the answer key. 
Look for the people who will set your soul free. You know, Mormonism has all the answers. Now, it's it's completely false. You, you don't have the answer to anything. It always seems impossible until it's done. But I stopped asking questions. I stopped wondering at the world around me because I knew it all. Mm-hmm. I knew the answer. Look for the good in everyone. The thing as a kid, I just vibrated with the good in the world around me. And then when I was 10 years old, I got the answer key. Uh, you know, Mormonism has all the answers. Now, it's it's completely false. You, you don't have the answer to anything. But I stopped asking questions. I stopped wondering at the world around me because I knew it all. Mm-hmm. I knew the answer. And so, you know, I... I compare my childhood experiences to people around me. I mean, Christine, just, uh, you know, how sorry for the summary, Christine, but how fucked up aspects of your childhood were. And, you know, friends that common friends we have in common, Christine, you know, their stories. I'm just like, God, I didn't have that. Um, But I think, part of my deal is I have serious anxiety and that amplifies everything. But I think I just stopped asking questions. I just stopped wondering at the world around me. I stopped having doubt. And if you stop having doubt, then you stop asking questions, which means you stop living, you stop seeing. You don't, you stop losing that critical thinking skill. And that's what I really dislike about the religion or dogma in general, um, but I, I can only relate to this this particular religion is they did all the thinking for you. Food prepping, I mean, every aspect, when you should have family home evening, what you should eat. I mean, this is not a, this is a full contact religion. Like this is all in kind of thing. And it, it does remove your identity. It's very weird here in Utah, we, we have a place called Happy Valley the us locals call and it's utah county it just it's got some weirdness there and i think a lot of it has to do with keeping up what i call the term keeping up with the smiths everybody's trying to be joseph and emma smith and they are fucking weird they don't even know how toxic they are to each other and and their their business practices and everything and this is supposedly the land of the most righteous, the one true church. Listen, people are listening. This ain't it. And if you want what's going on here in Utah politics to be worldly, you might want to rethink that. You just might want to. Because I just, people are fallible. And this organization is made up of fallible human beings who come from all kinds of deceptive, weird backgrounds and lives trying to make something and they're profiting off of people like me, like Steve, like others who have come from broken homes. We pay our 10% thinking this church is going to have all the answers to our salvation and we'll never have to think again. And that's just lazy. And you don't get out of being a human being doing that. You have to put forth some effort. That's just what it means to be human. And that's why I get frustrated with religion, with politics, when you're looking to your neighbor or your bishop to make your life decisions for you, why are you breathing? What? 
So I'll tell you one of the great missionary moments of my life. I, uh, I went on a Mormon mission to Brazil and I thought, you know, I'm teaching all these strangers about the gospel. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the church to my dad when I get home. So, you know, I remember going home, he's sitting in the front yard, smoking a cigar. I'm like, dad, I want to talk to you about something meaningful to me. And so, you know, I, I tell him about the church and he's just listening. And he said, son, you seem reluctant to talk to me about the concept of God talking to a man. And I said, well, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just, you know, worried that you might think it's weird or something. He says, oh, no. He says, I absolutely believe it. I see it every day. I see people that God talks to and tells them things. So I believe it happens. He said, but from what I can tell, he tells them some awfully fucked up shit. And uh, so I said, you want to go see the Astros play? He said, yeah, it'd be a good idea. But you know, <laughs> I, I think that's, that's the problem with a lot of people. If God talks to them, he's going to tell them some fucked up shit. Because he's going to tell them whatever they already think, right? Whatever they think is right, he's going to confirm that. And so, again, there's not the introspection. There's not the questioning. So there's not the growth. There's not the insight. Yeah. So what do you think that, I mean, do you think that's really God talking to people? Of course not. What do you think it is? I, I, I think it's dogma that, you know, we, we want some external force to give us the answer key, to tell us what's right and wrong. And I don't want to discount that there might be something beyond our understanding, beyond us. Um, but my spiritual journey, which that's the way, you know, I can interpret the universe around me is I find God when I look inside, I think that, um, you know, anytime I'm frustrated in traffic or in a line or something, my new mantra is I'll just mutter to myself eight billion gods and uh <laughs> yeah. you know as quirky as uh the the gods on olympus uh but you know i think we all have do, do, you, do you mean that by that that each person is their own god internally is that no, what is you mean god, by that is a god i yeah. mean i think that is the way that i when i'm at my best that's how i see people and that's how i want to uh, see people that each person is an expression of divinity of yes. the divine gotcha. and yes. and in they every person is divine and has is worthy uh you know that i i want to worship the people around me get to know them and feel them and understand them um so for me, that's the spiritual journey is looking within and getting rid of the bad, which makes room for the good and just learning to see the world around me, learning to vibrate with the good in the world around me. To me, yeah. that's divinity. Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you, you brought it back to the vibration uh, thing that you brought up before, because when you were talking about these women that were around you, that you just didn't, you didn't see them, you weren't aware of them. You said something like when the universe vibrates, you want to vibrate with it, mm -hmm. but you're, you're always like, 
with, with whatever anxious thoughts or fears or judgments or things like that, that, that we have, that we carry around in our minds kind of cloud us from really connecting with other people, the way that they're vibing or vibrating or whatever, whatever you want to say, the way that they're being, we're really only seeing our own minds <laughs> reflected onto them. And if, if, if we can learn to still that and really see people for who they are, I, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm interested how how you went from being a spiritual kid to having that squashed out of you by the, the way that your brain was trained as a Mormon. And then eventually at some point you decided to become a lawyer, you decided to become a senator. Yeah, let's take you it back to college. All kinds of yeah. these experiences that eventually brought you to this place of ayahuasca and mushrooms and I, I, I keep thinking, so I do want to say this before I turn it back over to you. When, when, I, when I first met a shaman about two or three years ago, and he was doing this kind of vetting interview to see if I was, you know, if I could join the, the circle that they were going to be doing the ceremony, or if I was, I don't know, just a Yahoo. I don't know really what he was checking, but he told me that if I, if I went and I did this, what I was basically going to do was I was going to be a surgeon on my own heart, on yeah. my own mind. And yeah. what, like whatever things I wanted to fix about myself, I was going to be the one who was doing it. And that was what this introspective journey was. I was thinking about that as you were talking about your experience, seeing the lights and recognizing, oh, that's your wife, Sarah. You know, the, the, the experiences that people have that I hear about when they're in this kind of state are, are very different and ve like very unique and to, to each person. But the kinds of reports that I hear that the, the effects of like, it, it, it makes me want to, it makes me feel like we're all one. It makes me more loving. It makes me want to connect. It makes me want to put down whatever walls I've put up that are keeping me away from connecting with people. And that, that's what I heard you saying. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you two stories about religion um, that I, think lay out what I'm wanting to express um when when it was clear that I was losing interest in the Mormon church um you know my bishop tells the story he said you're not you're not very into this are you and I said no not really how can you tell he said he said I look out at the congregation in sacrament and all I ever see is the top of your head. You just always have your head down. Like you don't want to be here mm. except when things get weird, when things get weird, <laughs> everyone else looks down. That's the only time I see your eyeball. <laughs> fast, fast in testimony meetings. I'm here for yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so <laughs> I could tell many stories. It's awesome. We all could. Um, but so at that point, they assigned a member of the bishopric to be my home teacher. And so this is, this is my story about organized religion. And so he said, uh, you know, I'm your home teacher, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, I, I, I know the program, you know, that's fine. That's great. You know, look forward to chatting with you. And so then he said, look, I don't know if these messages are, if you care that much, how about I just check in with you periodically? I'm like, that's, that's great. That's perfect. You know? And so he would text me, the last day of the month yes how you doing i mean even even though it was just text 
home teaching, he had to check that box. So the last day of every month, it was awesome. I'd tell my, I'd wake up and I'd tell Sarah, I said, I'm going to get the text today. So I'd get, how are you guys doing? Oh, I'm man. like, I'm like doing great, doing great. You can check that box. So to me, that's what organized religion comes down to. It's checking boxes. Yeah. See, I, I left, I left before the smartphones and the texting and being able to home teach through texting. I never had that experience. That would have been awesome. Just shoot them a text, check off <laughs> yeah. the box. Man, I would have been hundred percent that way. But that's so beautiful that it was the, even, even with a text, it was the last day of them. How you doing? Yeah. Like, you know, Hey, your concern, your concern is what gets me through. I really appreciate it. <laughs> um, but uh, so, okay, here is that versus true religion. Um, I'm in an ayahuasca ceremony, which uh, I supplemented with uh, four grams of mushrooms. And so, yeah, I, I, I had launched. And yeah, so this guide who I really like, Giancarlo, um, I went to him and I said, I said, I'm struggling, buddy. And then uh, he said, what is it? And I said, it's it's a lot. And uh, that was as articulate as I could be. You know, I went back to my family roots. I'm like, it's a lot. And uh, so he said, all right. He says, tell me about it. And so I told him about when I'm 10 years old, which happened to be when I joined the Mormon church that I was, I would just stand on this corner and cry. I was a crossing guard with my sash and my badge. And I picked the corner that was least trafficked because I knew I was just going to sit there and cry. I'd just cry all morning. I'd cry all afternoon. Then when people would walk toward the corner, I'd wipe my tears and, Hey, how you doing? You know, get them across the street. And, you know, for me, that kind of, I go back to that place that there was a break at that point. And, which is funny. That's when I got the answer key, you know, but, uh, so he said, he said, you know, I don't think that any of this serves you any longer. You need to let it go. Mm. And so part of the reason I, I love Giancarlo for many reasons, part of it is he's not one of these dogmatic, dogmatic hierarchical guides that he's the new Dallin Oaks, you know, He's just, he's a guy who has experience and skills. And so you can't offend him. So he said, I think you need to let this go. And so during the middle of the ceremony, I, I said, Giancarlo, how the fuck am I supposed to let this go? I don't even right. know what it is. Yeah. I don't, why did this happen? Why was I so alone as a kid? I mean, my brother killed himself. No adult talked to me about it ever. And so I, <laughs> He, you know, I love him because he, he, he just, he looked at me and he laughed. He said, I don't know. He said, how could I know that? He said, lay back and ask the medicine. Mm. And so I love that he has faith in the plants rather than in his own shamanic mm-hmm. power of discernment, blah, 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 blah. And if he was really Dallin Oaks, he would say, there are three steps to letting it go. <laughs> Step one. Step one. <laughs> yeah. um, Get visiting teaching and finding yeah. <laughs> But uh, it, no, it would have something to do with my personal worthiness, right? What was oh, I right. doing wrong? Right. Um, but so I laid back. And so uh, he just, he, Giancarlo, he buried me. He put, what do you call that Egyptian thing? An ankh on my mm. heavy ankh on my chest. Mm-hmm. And he's throwing rose petals all over me. And 
you know, I love the power of suggestion and all this. And so I went back to that place and I, I just felt the aloneness. I'd forgotten how alone I felt as a kid and it hurt and I was scared and sad and, you know, was in that space for a while. And then I got the answer to it, which was, it just was right. I mean, in a sober state of consciousness, a normal state of consciousness, if you look at me and say, Steve, everything about your childhood, it just was, you got to move on, buddy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs> but, but for some reason that answer it just moved me forward leaps and bounds that it just was and it no longer serves me. Yeah. Now, now since then, you know, what I realize is we have these experiences in ceremony and we're thinking that's the answer. And quite often what it is, that's the portal. And mm. so that door was opened that my childhood, it just was. Um, but since then, I've had some tremendous insights of, okay, why was it that way? What does it mean? What can I do today? So I'm very lucky that the medicine, it will bring me low. It will reintroduce me to doubt and uncertainty, to fear and aloneness, some of these negative things. But then it picks me up and encourages me that there's the future. We can do better. And so... You know, since then, I've had insights in ceremony, but now I'm getting more and more insights because I think I'm vibrating. I'm becoming more human. I'm just figuring some things out that and I'm integrating a lot with my wife. I also believe in degrees and skills. So with a professional therapist working through some things and, you know, to me, religion is so much about healing. And we draw these false lines between spiritual, emotional, physical, you know, doctor heals the physical, a shrink heals the mind. And, you know, maybe religion does something for the soul. I think, you know, healing is kind of healing and the way we silo out these things is somewhat false. And I just love the healing that's going on that I don't think exists in many organized religions. It's just an invitation for me to look within, to fix some things, let some things go, pick up some new habits, and then help other people. Just being better myself, being whole and independent, being present, it allows me to then help others vibrate. I mean, my ability to connect to other people now and meet them where they are and give what they need is just night and day improved. Hmm. Could, could you tell me that that experience that you had as you're imagining your 10 year old self as a crossing guard crying, being told that you need to let that go, turning inwards, trying to figure out how to let it go. What, what is the healing there? Like it, what, what is healing about letting go an old memory or an old story or something like that? So it's the way for me, it is seeing things as they are. So obviously with psychedelics, you can get the, the lights, the fractals, the dancing bears, you know, the, the Harlequins and whatever it is, you can get a lot of the craziness, but 
the value to me is there are aspects that are far more real than reality because each of us carries this image of reality that isn't true, that isn't accurate. And often those false views hurt us. They limit us. And psychedelics allow us to re-examine some things that we considered absolute fact. So at the beginning, the story I just told you, when Giancarlo invited me to let it go and I saw myself as this 10-year-old pathetic kid, um, before I launched into that, I saw this Polynesian warrior and he was just glorious. Muscle on top of muscle and just, I went up to him. Sounds I mean, like was, one of the sons of Helaman you were looking he, at there. He was fierce. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want the workout program that the right. <laughs> <laughs> book of Mormon workout. Those, I want some of those pipes, man. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was just spectacular, awesome. So I just went up to him and I could not peel my eyes off because he was glorious. I got right up in his grill and I'm just in awe. And then he sees me and he just reverences me, he just reveres me. Like he is seeing the exact same, like he is seeing someone so amazing. And I'm like, weird. And then, then I went into the. But you felt yourself being viewed by someone else as with that sense of awe. So I, you had I didn't that, know why. That visceral I just, experience. I just knew that he was revering me. Wow. And so I had this experience where I went back when I'm 10, I saw myself on the corner how alone I was. And so I just, you know, kept saying it's, it's, I'm not fine. This was not okay. Because I'd always been telling myself, I'm okay. You know, it's fine. I'm, I'm fine. This was okay. It wasn't. And so, you know, just realizing that I was this 10 year old boy in this, this, this bad situation, but that I was, that I endured it, you know? And so it was, I, I gained some respect for myself because I really thought I was pathetic, that I was weak, that I was, you know, that I was fucked up. And then I went to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror. Let me see how good you are on journeys. Who was looking back at me, Glenn? Well, I'm going to go with uh, one of the sons of Helaman. Yeah, yeah, it was it was that Polynesian warrior. That was my wow. reflection. Wow. And so, you know, okay, that's that's psychedelic gibberish, right? For people no. who haven't been in that mystical state of consciousness. Yeah. But for people who have been there, that was however real or false or fictional that was, that was my mind, that was me saying steve you see yourself wrong yeah. you you don't understand your own origin story mm -hmm. and so my self-talk before that point was unbelievably abusive mm -hmm. i mean you know my my term of endearment for myself was dumb shit mm -hmm. and uh, you know anything that i did wrong i'm just like god what a dumb shit and then uh you know that's what i really believed and so since that vision of seeing my soul 
okay, do we have souls? Is that what my soul really looks like? Whatever. Seeing how strong I was, that was my 10-year-old, 80-pound soul that got me through that time. Seeing that, my talk has been nothing but positive since then. Mm. And if I screw up, which I still do at times, you know, I'll do something, I go, God, what a dumb shit. Then, you know, I will, I will say out loud, I am not a dumb shit. I just, I screwed this up. It's part of the makeup of who I am. I'm going to work my best to get it right next time. Yeah. And that, that changes, man, if you change the way you view yourself, that changes the way you view the world and can relate to the world and people around you. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So much of that. I have had that similar experience. Yeah. yeah I, I remember hearing, I, I think the guy's name is Michael Dobson. That is the head of maps. Is that his name? Dobson? Uh, Rick, Rick, Rick Doblin. Doblin. That's what it is. Um, yeah. I, I heard him talk about uh, one of the clinical trials that they had done with MDMA with somebody who had PTSD from Gulf war or something lost all of his friends. Um, and he just didn't feel like he deserved to be happy because yeah. these guys died and they didn't have a chance to be happy. And under one session under MDMA, he had this imaginary conversation meeting of the minds with these people. And they said, look, you're here to live the life that we would have lived, feel as much joy as you can and do it for us. And it just flipped this switch in his mind. Cause he was in that state of neuroplasticity and you know right. like he was able to really change the quality of his life just with one of those sessions with a skilled therapist who's guiding it um his 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 mind in that state um yeah it's it's um w w whether it's like you said imaginary fictional whatever it is your feet you're having these visceral experiences and feelings that you have to deal with you can't ignore it yeah. And it, and it can be very profound and changing I, in, in my experience with it as well. That's, I was having the same negative talk for myself and that's what led me to ketamine is um, I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop just beating myself up emotionally and just questioning every decision I made in my life that led me to how I couldn't keep, you know, prop two and all that stuff, how it couldn't keep going the way it did. Yeah. There was a lot of weird negative things. And then having that disruption in that negative thought process. And again, the ketamine just jolted me. It was really, it was really the mushrooms that really got me to get to those dark places, um, reflect on it. And also on the journey up was letting it go and being yeah. okay. Well, and knowing that it was, it all had to happen the way it did and seeing a sort of bigger, bigger picture there. What were you going to say, Steve? Well, yeah, you are a great example to me of how the wrong self image can can distort our reality. It's, you know, working with you on prop two and subsequent, uh, you know, to make medical cannabis available to patients in Utah. It was so unbelievable to watch you and to see what you accomplished. I mean, I spent 16 years in the legislature and in that entire time, other than LGBTQ rights and a few things with higher ed, I did not do what you did. 
and uh you know and even those things i did i did them inside you know kind of a confined space where you can make things happen man you took you took the church into open field and beat them so yeah i can't say that i've even done that so i'm just watching you in awe seeing your talents your abilities your goodness your patience and love for people around you and you wouldn't celebrate with me. You wouldn't celebrate your successes with me and with others because you didn't see them. We would have these victories in your mind was in what we hadn't yet accomplished. And we, we didn't get this. We started with, we failed. And, you know, I didn't know what was driving that, you know, other than you get in a battle and sometimes you lose you know, you lose sight of what you really are accomplishing, how well things are going, but, you know, piecing it together now, knowing about how you were struggling mentally. I think that's what it was, is you refused to see yourself as God. You refused to see yourself as this glorious, wonderful human who could accomplish and did accomplish great things because no, you were just Christine with all of the negative things that you were carrying around in your mind. Yeah. That's, and it's true. And I think we all do that as human beings. We have these versions of ourselves, this negative talk that we, we say to ourselves, and we pull that, that version of ourselves out and we just keep laying it on and laying it on. And, and yeah. that becomes our prison. That becomes our reality. Yes. I, 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 I like what you said. She wasn't focusing on the accomplishments. She was focusing on what hadn't been accomplished. And that reminded me of what you said earlier um, about your 10-year-old self, that you just accepted that your experience is what was. It wasn't mm -hmm. something different. It isn't what you think it should have been. And so you weren't focusing on uh, what it wasn't, <laughs> what it could have been differently. You're like focusing on what it was and just really accepting that. Um, I, I've been listening to an audiobook recently by Byron Katie called Loving What Is. Are either of you familiar with that? No. It's, uh, it, it's really, really powerful stuff. And it, and it speaks to this, Lo loving what is. Not, not getting caught up in those stories of, oh, this should be something different. Right. What wow. is it? Wow. <laughs> what is it? Because anytime you're saying it should be something different, you're, you got, here's what it is, but then yes. this what it went over there. And then there's like this gap between what is and what should be and what fills up that that gap it, it, like anger Fiction. hate um shame guilt greed you know like all kinds of stuff fills up um that space between what is and what should wow. be or what you think should be and that doesn't mean that you don't work for improvement improving yourself improving the world around but just like really accepting things as they are and not wasting any time on stuff that you just you can't do anything <laughs> about you know part of the reason i love talking about these experiences with other people sharing experiences is it's a good way to integrate and and realize some things i hadn't realized until you said that what is the message i got it might not have been just this dismissive it just was move on it would more properly maybe it was an invitation to see what it was mm -hmm. it wasn't what i thought it was i wasn't this pathetic kid this miserable kid i was a strong motherfucker who got mm -hmm. through you know that that 10 year old version of me succeeded you know he carried he carried steve urquhart forward 
to where I could have some really neat things in my life. And so, you know, it just was, well, what was it? It was, it was this lonely, alone, but kind of, kind of strong kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the way that I've come to understand that phrase of letting it go, like the, the shaman told you, well, maybe this doesn't serve you anymore. Maybe it's time to let it go. I'm not going to tell you how to do that. You go in and figure out how to do it yourself is, is that reframing of the story. So like thinking, well, th this is how it was in the past. This is how it should be. And, and we carry that around in our minds and it interferes with what's going on even in our life right now. It, 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 you used the phrase, Steve, distorting reality. It does. And it's our own thinking. It's our own minds that we're doing that. And th this is where I've seen so much value of uh, mushrooms or ayahuasca or, you know, the, this uh, getting into that state of neuroplasticity and really going, okay, let's, let's clean this up. Let's make this bed. Let's smooth out the wrinkles. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a, a lifetime process uh, of, yeah. of self-discovery. And yeah. I hope so. Yeah. Man, I hope it's a lifetime process. I, yeah. when I breathe my last breath, I hope I keep learning and growing all the way to that moment. Yeah. I, I just, that's what I found has helped me when you were talking about that, that space of what I would just call being present, you know, mm -hmm. not wishing for what could have been. That's what I needed the medicine to help me. The ketamine stopped me from that repetitive thinking, Oh, prop two should have looked like this. This should have turned out like this and yeah. letting go of that. And, and it was Steve's encouraging words. Now he was far into his plant journey before I was. So it was really nice to have this sort of, wisdom that he was discovering sort of trickling into my head before I ever really got into the plant medicine myself. And when I did the ketamine, I realized the negative thought that was going on. And then each journey that I had with the mushrooms, every time I took the time to really focus on being present and being mindful and grateful for what was right here, I realized everything did happen the way it was supposed to. I don't know why I was thinking and telling myself it was supposed to look differently. Who, who the hell am I to, to predict how everybody's going to make a choice so my version of reality pans right. out? How right. fucking arrogant is that? Right. And so realizing, oh, oh, I understand what that means. It all happened the way it was supposed to happen because everybody has free agency. Everybody gets to make choice, myself included. So I let a lot of that kind of stuff start to just go and melt yeah. and, and accepting that what is, is what is, and yeah. it's okay. And that is what I mean by spirituality. You're getting into more of a flow state rather than fighting against the universe, thinking you can script the universe, that the universe didn't carry out its proper role. You're in flow state. You're vibrating with the world around you, and that makes you you know, more aware of the good you're doing, which in turn makes you more aware of, oh, and here's some things I can continue to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I want to try to let go of something right, right now, right here, <laughs> because get it out. When, I'm, I'm, when I hear you, Christine say, it's what's supposed to happen. I start, I start filtering that through that, 
Mormon mind of mine that's like, okay, there was an architect God who set out, this oh. is going to happen, then this is going to happen. And, this is, and so, you know, like when people go, everything happens for a reason. And I roll my eyes because I'm like, oh, you think that there's this big puppet master God that's just moving things around. Like I need to let go of that, the way that I'm interpreting that word, because there's other ways of seeing that with the, what, what, why did things happen the way that they did? Because everything lined up in a way to make that happen. <laughs> that's just it. And that's what's been going on in this universe for 13.8 billion years yes. since the Big Bang. All of these little atoms and molecules just in the exact spot when they're right here and the conditions like this are like this and this is 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 like this, then this is what happens. And yeah, that's so. Remember when I was telling you during my story when I brought advocates to the space and as they showed up, a lot of them heard the same message for me. You showed up right when you were supposed to. And I'm glad you're mm. here because each one, of, e even as fucked up of how everything panned out, every person's energy added a certain layer and, and flavor to this whole beautiful story. And every person negative or positive created this incredible amount of energy, this vortex that just kept pulling people in. And so when people want to give me credit for things, I get a little, I get a little hesitant in taking that credit. I just saw that there was this energy that, that was happening, that was needed. And I, I just was, it's like spinning the, the, the uh, revolving door. I was just the first person in there that pushed it. And then it's all this energy that just kind of took it over. It was just beyond me. Yeah. I'm just thrilled to have been somehow a catalyst or some sort of weird conduit to well to you you it. you are energy and i am energy and steve is energy exactly. and like everybody that worked on this is energy so when you're talking about the energy coming together you, you might as well say the people coming together the, the minds yeah. coming together the the, the effort coming together and it's all yeah and finding that value and realizing everybody had a purpose to this even marty yeah right <laughs> like, all of it all <laughs> of it marty and they all played the role and and i'm just thrilled to be part of this amazing story and how it unfolds i don't know because you know decisions will be made tomorrow that i don't even know about today mm -hmm. and i will make those choices and others will respond and make choices and we don't know what which makes just kind of life beautiful mm. you know yeah. is 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 that you know and i'd say glenn in, in your world my perspective is there definitely is a God. There definitely is an architect who can create and destroy is capable of love and hate. And, you know, that God's name is Glenn. And mm. so, you know, take care of him, nurture him, build him, you know, let him do his best work. And, you know, I was part up, I, I was part of, I was caught up in Christine's godlike creation. I mean, uh, you know, let's tell it as a, as a fictional narrative. She, came to the Capitol and, you know, one of the first figures she talks with an all wise Senator, mm -hmm. um, let's give him the name Senator Steve Urquhart. You know, she tells her story. This is what I desire to do. And uh, with all of his wisdom says, sweetheart, that ain't going to happen. So you, so know, you, not, you not, were the first Senator that she talked to when she went, I wasn't the first, but I was one of the first mm -hmm. Christine, wasn't I? It, I talked to Jim and then Froer and then you. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was because you were the Senate sponsor, Jim, because he announced he had some health issues. So I thought he was the senator I could pitch cannabis to to yeah. 
help whatever he had going on. So, you know, I'm, uh, I'm like, wow, this is great. Um, you know, by this point I'm, I'm smoking tons of weed and I'm a big fan. And so, uh, I'm like, this is great. I'm all with you, but I don't see this happening. I just, you know, you carry on, uh, uh, Don Quixote, you get it done. <laughs> um, but you know, then even though Christine is saying she has healing to do work to do, I got to see a God go into action. And then, you know, she reenlisted me later when things got a little sketchy. She's like, Hey, Sancho Panza, you know, jump in and, and help me out with this. And I got to be part of that. And so how is that not godlike that she saw the need of patience and she took on Goliath. She took on all sorts of monsters and made it happen. Um, yeah. If you can, that's amazing. If you can improve on that even more. Wow. How can I help? Let's do this. So you're just reinforcing this whole Deva and Goliath thing for me. <laughs> the, yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the God, the divinity, the the feminine divine versus the Goliath of the Mormon church story. I like that. Well, I look at people who move the needle politically and they all share one quality. If they move it significantly is they don't give up. Mm. And uh, that's what was amazing to me. And, and they can have the same conversation with a different person every day, going over basic stuff, offensive questions, moronic questions, just a smile on their face. They tell the story and they keep pushing, moving forward. So uh, when Christine, when she had these defections and needed help, you know, I jumped in and said, yeah, I'm happy to do this. And uh, I got a friend of mine, Charlie Evans, a great lobbyist. I said, hey, I have a client for you. He's like, good. I always like clients. Yeah, this one isn't going to pay you a penny. He's like, well, okay, what do we got to do? So uh, we would just, the Mormon church through everything it had at this, we were thinking, okay, we've outed it. It, it won't want to go forward when people know how dishonest it's being. We haven't pegged. It didn't care, man. And this is a fault of Marty. Which, by the way, you should know, Marty was my mentor. When I went into the house, oh, he, was, he was speaker, and I was one of his two golden boys, and he really promoted me. And so Marty and I have a long history. And, you know, the church used to be smarter before he took over in this position. And it wouldn't have its fingerprints all over things, but, you know, uh, he didn't care. It, to him, this was this was... God did not want medical cannabis in Utah. And again, God must have spoken to him. And so he had a lot of autonomy clearly to do things and he just kept coming. And so even though we made it very plain that the church was being dishonest, the church was, these were all its puppets. It was running things. They kept coming and it was discouraging to me and Charlie and, Christine, at the end of long days, I always forget that Christine still is a patient. I always forget that, you know, until like, you know, she doesn't answer a text right away and she'll say, I have a migraine, talk to you tomorrow. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's a patient. She still has a brain tumor. She still has a few conditions. And so at the end of the day, she would leave and Charlie and I would look at each other. We're like, she's done. She's not coming back. There's she's done. And I mean, 
what stupid, foolish men to think that because already the ground she had covered. And of course she was back the next day, just, just fierce and, and won't stop. And so, you know, a lot of people, they want to show up to one political meeting, state their, their, you know, give their speech. And then what do they always say? Oh, their minds were already made up. They didn't even listen to a word I said. Yeah, no shit. Cause you came in at the last minute, people have been working on this issue for a long, long time and you weren't there. And so Christine, she came in and people, including me were saying, yeah, this isn't going to happen, but she didn't give up. She just kept pushing, kept pushing. And she continues to push, you know, and the, the church, these legislators who, you know, are in on it, people who are making money off this, uh, you know, uh, very few dispensaries satisfying a lot of customers. They don't want things to change that much. And she continues to push. And so just this incredible ability to just wake up in the morning, no, what, no matter what happened the night before and just keep pushing. It's, it's something I'm in awe of. So I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more, Steve, about your decision and I don't know how far you want to take it back. If you want to go to college, if you want to, uh, when you became a lawyer or when you decided to become a senator, because you had your own transformation mm -hmm. story as you decided to dedicate your life to public service and, and, and then the falling apart, all of that. Um, what, yeah. what, what, what do you want to say about that part of your story? Um, I think it's all pretty boring until I started to fall apart. And so, you know, that's, that's when things got interesting. That's when I started to escape dogma and escape the control of others. And so I'll just quickly skip over, uh, you know, everything leading up to that point. So again, my parents hated each other. I didn't have, you know, much discipline. I think abuse took the place of discipline, you know, and so my parents, they didn't know what to do. And while I was a very devout Mormon, I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't smoke, I wouldn't have sex. I just have these, and still have at times, these incredible disconnects because I wanted to be good, I believe. But I stole a car when yeah. I was in high school. Who does that, man? And I mean, I, I had it when I'm on my mission. And so I, I went Wait, to- Wait, you were driving? Oh, 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 not, not down in Brazil, but at home, you, you still had a- Stolen. Yeah. So you didn't, you didn't confess to having stolen a car yeah, in your I missionary stole it, interview? Stole it and kept it. So yeah, I went to my president and said, look, I wasn't trying to hide anything. It just never occurred to me that this was wrong. <laughs> I said, I stole a car. And uh, so we had to deal with that. And um, so, you know, a lot of times I don't, if it seems like I'm not making sense, I don't make sense. And, but you know, so I really tried to be good and uh, what to to survive at home. I realized all I needed was straight A's. I needed great grades. So, OK, I can do that. No problem. You know, went to good school, Williams College back east, uh, was on the Mormon plan, went to BYU law school, met Sarah, met her, married her. We had four babies. Everything's going according to plan. And then um, I just started doing some math and I just realized 
that there's no fucking way in hell that the Mormon church, Mormon religion is God's plan. I mean, that'd be the dumbest plan ever, right? Mm-hmm. Plan A captures like 0.1%, 0.01% of all people on earth. They have this probationary period where they have the gospel and they're tested. Well, everyone else is other, right? Everyone else is catch-all. And so for me, it, it really became an issue of math before anything else you know because i was questioning it was the lgbtq stuff that was the final push but just the math of the whole proposition i'm like this this can't be right and so being an urquhart um i kept it bottled up you know i didn't i didn't tell my wife i didn't really tell anyone i just stopped believing and for me, if I no longer believed, then that meant I no longer believed in the commandments. And because I had the answer key from the time I was 10 years old, I hadn't bothered to determine on my own what was wrong and what was right. Um, so I just started doing everything. And a lot of it felt nice and good. And what I realize now is my whole life, I've just been battling tremendous anxiety. And, you know, I'm the, I'm the happiest drunk or drugged out dude you've ever met. I mean, I'm never once have I lost my cool when I'm altered because I just relax. I relax into it. And so. Uh, when, when, when did you start like your first your first drink, you know, so, so you, you've, you've been faithfully obeying the word of wisdom your entire life. You, you do the math, you see, wait a second, this plan of salvation thing, this doesn't really make any sense to me. I don't believe this anymore. At some point you're like, I'm going to take that first drink. I'm going to act on this uh, lust. <laughs> like I, what, what, what were those experiences like for you? Cause that's, that's a pretty big shift to go yeah. from not doing that to like, okay, I'm going to open up the floodgates. Yeah. So I went into the legislature 2001. I was in the house 2001 through eight. And, you know, there was active Mormon trying my best. And it was shortly after I went over to the Senate. Um, that, so that would have been 2009 that I just really am questioning things. And so um, I was out to dinner with a friend and, uh, uh, you know, I was drinking my Coke and uh, (laughs) there was, there was alcohol in my Coke. And so, you know, I kind of looked up, I was startled and he winked at me and uh, fine. It was Katie bar to the door after that. And so, Um, I needed to make up for lost time. And again, I liked the escape. And so uh, I rather quickly uh, became an alcoholic and alcohol is good, but Oxy was even better at escaping. And so uh, a lot of my time in the Senate, I was pretty strung out. So what, did, did you hide this from your wife, from Sarah, or did, did she know that you were drinking and taking Oxy? Oh, I hid it from everyone. And so, you know, that's part of, 
what Sarah and I had to deal with and still deal with is just the incredible amounts of deception that I'm mm. appearing one way, but living this really different life. And, you know, I'm, I'm really only recently speaking my native tongue, which is truth. Mm. I think that's for all of us, our native tongue. And, uh, you know, starting on this, I think that I was telling you about 10 years old on this corner, I would get by a lot of life by creating these fictions and telling myself that things were different than they really were. And I got very good at it. And uh, so I was living this fiction that somehow it all made, it's like stealing the car, somehow not understanding that was wrong. I can't explain it. And so um, I was in this fiction where somehow it was okay. But then, you know, these substances, you want to you wanna worry about the real drugs, worry about alcohol, worry about Oxycontin, worry about these things. They're, they're hellacious. And so, you know, I just became more and more lost. And then, uh, you but know. But legally lost. Well, I guess not with the Oxycontin. That was... You probably didn't have that legally, did or did you, did you have a legal prescription for those, or were you? No, illegal. Yeah, it's pretty pretty easy to find any drug you want. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, then one thing led to another, and I'm in the middle of just this torrid affair. Um, what made it torrid? Oh well, it was an escape. I mean, it was. God, it was an escape, you know, sex, sex is immersive. It's, it's, it's the best drug there is. And so, um, you know, sex is, is a great escape, but then also shit, why not just live this second life where, you know, play house and, um, you know, and I feel bad saying that cause it was, it was, you know, I made promises, to everyone around me that just weren't true. I thought they were true while I was saying them. And, you know, so I was in two affairs and deeply into them. And, you know, I feel really badly about that because, you know, I was telling the women, no, it's, it's going to be us. And while I was saying it, I meant it, but I didn't mean it. I mean, you know, in reality, because, Sarah's I love Sarah she's everything and you know just just lost and then all the shame and guilt that came with it um you know then I realized god I'm a fucking dad I'm I'm him in every way oh your dad yeah yeah I'm, I'm my yeah. dad I'm doing exactly what he did and uh god that just so you know huge funk and it wasn't fun. I mean, it was very destructive to everything and including me. Um, how long, how long did this go on? You said like 2009 or so. And I, yesterday we talked, you talked about 2014 as well. So five, six years. Um, well, uh, so, you know, the drugs, the alcohol, that was probably eight years. And then the women probably three years. Mm. Um, you know, and Sarah, I mean, I blew up, 
um, you know, dragged Sarah into Sarah's super classy. She's great. Dragged her into just some really awful situations, humiliating situations. And, um, so, you know, (laughs) part of coming clean and speaking my native tongue is I'm having to backtrack and go over a lot of things. So only fairly recently, out of session, I'm like feeling more human feelings and, and wanting to be honest and take responsibility. So I said to Sarah, I said, you don't even know that I tried to kill myself, do you? Mm. She's like, what? And so, you know, I told her the story that, you know, I was in a hotel room one night with a lot of oxy and downed them all. And, you know, it definitely would have done the trick. And, uh, my phone wasn't charged at the time and I didn't have a charger and uh, not meaning to, but I, I couldn't really make a call or I would have made a call the instant after I did it. You know, I just realized, shit, I don't really want to die. <laughs> I, uh, why, why didn't you? Well, the reasons I did, um, you know, I was just in this mess and couldn't see any way out. And I mean, anytime there was turbulence on an airplane, I'm like, Oh God, I'm sorry for the rest of you. But if we hit a mountain, that'd be so fucking awesome. Or, you know, I mean, I just, I really, I, if if I knew I was going to die at that point, I would have had just a huge smile on my face. I would have, my last breath would have been a sigh of relief. And so I just wanted out but I didn't know how to be honest and I couldn't, I didn't understand the depth of Sarah's love for me. The people I'm not afraid of any fucking human being, any situation. What I'm afraid of are monsters that are out there and they're monsters, my own creation. And I'm really afraid of people who love me. And so, you know, it's tough to love me because I won't show much And when I do, and I hope in all of this, I should be speaking past tense because I think I'm moving past it. And so Sarah really scared me because I knew she loved me and I loved her. So I don't want to disappoint her and all this. And so I couldn't really reach out to her. I couldn't reach out to people who truly loved me because of the shame. And what if they stop loving me and all of that? But then when I took it, you know, took all those pills, I just, I'm thinking of my kids and you know, I've, although I was absent more than I should have been during this, um, I'm a good dad. I'm a good dad. I'm a good dad. I'm a good dad. And so, you know, it's tough to love me because I won't show much. And when I do, and I hope in all of this, I should be speaking past tense because I think I'm moving past it. And so Sarah really scared me because I knew she loved me and I loved her. So I don't want to disappoint her and all this. And so I couldn't really reach out to her. I couldn't reach out to people who truly loved me because of the shame. And well, what if they stop loving me and all of that? But then when I took it, you know, took all those pills, I just, I'm thinking of my kids and, you know, I've, although I was absent more than I should have been during this, um, 
I'm a good dad and really love them. They know they're loved. I'm kind to them, good to them. And so I was just thinking about them. And so just, you know, just shoving fingers and fists down my throat and threw a lot up and didn't know it took me a long time to get them up. And so I was really stoned and blurry when I got them up and uh, didn't know how much I got up. Didn't so felt myself passing out and didn't know if I was going to wake up. And I did woke up, got dressed and went to the Capitol the next day and sat in committee and heard bills. How, how long was it before you told anybody that you'd done that? Um, I didn't tell anyone for years and wow. then it became, I would tell people, you know, I'd tell some friends and really dealing with the fact, God, I tried to kill myself that in that, whatever driving that doesn't just go away. And so, you know, it's only recently that I'm kind of dealing with that on a human level of like, wow, that's a big deal. You know, yeah. it's like I stole a car and I didn't see it as a big deal. I'm like, wow, I tried to kill myself. That's, that's really a big deal. And, you know, I see that you have uh, a Beatles poster behind you. Uh, the, the Beatles keep coming up and it's let it be. I've had it. It's come up in a couple ceremonies and that's what they played at my brother's funeral. It was uh, 1970 two that he died and they played let it be in long and winding road and so i really in those two ceremonies just mourned him mm. saw him saw my parents saw me and so you know i don't know how six-year-olds should mourn i don't know if they really do because they don't understand mm. but i think you probably as you go along in life you deal with some things you look back and I just didn't. I don't know if that's my weird psyche or because I had the answer key, but, you know, I really mourned my brother and mourned what I lost. He he provided one of two sanctuaries, his room, because my dad didn't dare go in there. Um, and then, you know, my grandfather's farm and, you know, not realizing this was the case, what I carried through life. I thought I carried sympathy for my brother and understanding what I carried is just feeling like he had destroyed one of my sanctuaries that how, how dare he abandon me. And, uh, you know, these are things that I think humans have to deal with. And I just didn't until the plants opened up some doors for me. Yeah. So, so how, how, how long did you go from that night when you took the oxy and tried to kill yourself to when you did discover, I, I think it was, you were outside of Amsterdam, you did an ayahuasca ceremony with your wife. Yeah, what year was that? So it would have been like 14 that I did that in the hotel room. Um, and, you know, during that time, uh, uh, you know, to those both, both affairs, you know, blew up um, just, it was gross as vulgar. And so Sarah, you know, she's. Was it something when, when those affairs blew up, did it um, stain your reputation politically? Was, was this something that was having an impact on your professional life as well as your inner personal life? No, it, it 
none of it was public. Mm. And so, you know, Sarah was really questioning herself. Is she just being a fool? Mm. Is she being uh, a doormat? Should she blow me up? You know, is it right for her to protect this secret, which really harmed her and the family? And, uh, you know, I would love for someone to talk with her about all of this. We've talked about it tons, you know, now that I'm learning to communicate. And um, so, you know, what her conclusion was is I had, I'd accumulated a lot of chits with her, a lot of credit in the bank that she knew that my heart was good, that she, she thought I loved her and she, though I wasn't acting like it. And she always knew how much I loved and valued the kids. And so she knew I was lost. And uh, so she would tell me things like, she could see me. I couldn't see me that she knew me. I didn't know me. And so she's just like, look, I want you to be healthy for the sake of the kids. And, you know, I want to get you healthy. Then we can decide what we do. And, uh, you know, I think part of it is she realized that I was somewhat well, she really, why do I, why do I qualify that? I think she realized I was suicidal and just really lost and screwed up. And so, um, this hurt her, of course. And here's, she, the level of love and devotion she has to me is phenomenal. I think very few people get that. And which means she's given up a lot of other things for me and our relationship and man, I just shit all over her and our relationship. So by the time I left the legislature, uh, we were both very wounded. And what and year was that? 2016? The end of 16. And so did you guys uh, do the ayahuasca trip in 14? Is that right? No, no. It was after I was out of the legislature. Out. Okay. Okay. So it was 16. We moved up, Sarah sold her business and, um, we moved up to Salt Lake just figuring, okay, let's try all of this with a clean slate. And so, uh, our son was going to MIT. We were in Cambridge and, um, she and I were just killing some time while he was, you know, in class or something. And so I, I said, Hey, I have a couple friends who are doing ayahuasca. Have you ever heard of that? No. And so, I'm like, well, I don't quite understand it. Let's, do you want to discuss it? And she's like, yes. And uh, so we looked at it and I said, would you ever want to do this? And she said, yes. And I mean, she is, Sarah's such a straight arrow. She's such a rule follower that I'm like, what? And so, you know, I think her calculation was, we couldn't really be doing worse. You know, this, this, she liked what she was reading the stories. And so, you know, a few months later we're in Amsterdam and uh, I just do some Google foo and find someone. And uh, that night 
she said, come by my place. We'll do a session. So it was just her and Sarah and me. And uh, it was life changing. What, what was your experience like? Do, do you remember? I'm sure you remember that first experience. What, cause, cause you, you'd had the experience of alcohol, oxy pot. How was ayahuasca different from any altered state of consciousness that you had experienced previously, previously? Um, all of those things, uh, they pull you out of life. Um, I'm going to qualify that a bit with cannabis. Um, you know, cannabis, some people just need as, as medicine, as patients for physical pain and other things, but cannabis now for me, it, it's more of a psychedelic my mind knows where i want to be so mm. you know cannabis cannabis can be the positive or negative um but ayahuasca it's i saw some things i saw and i entered my very first time i entered that mystical state of consciousness which i call the holy of holies the sanctum sanctorum where every good religion well every religion has started that someone unless someone's just making it up they had a mystical experience and so i'm there and uh i'm there with the madre which again i don't know if that's is there a real entity that i was with is just is this just the power of suggestion because you're talking about talk about madre grandmother ayahuasca is right you're talking about okay Right. It's part of the lore of ayahuasca. And so, yeah. you know, did I just adopt that lore and create something in my mind to show myself some things? I don't know, but I'm there with her. And so I, I create this scene. It's, it's this nature scene. And then I'm just running it through in the style of Monet and the style of Motis and the style of Degas and the style of O'Keefe and the style of, and, and I just had no idea I was that creative. I mean, it's, it was just unbelievably beautiful and, and just soul cleansing to see that I could do that with my mind. I didn't know I had that kind of creativity. And then um, the scene, it then just started, it turned into desert and was just burning up. And, uh, I, I didn't know what that was for several years. I, I just couldn't stop it. It was just burning up. Everything was dying and I, I lost it. And, you know, at the time it was like, okay, that was, that was a weird part of this. And so I'll, I'll get back to that. But then Sarah, she being pragmatic, uh, she came in with a list of five things and uh, she loves her lists and loves, you know, crossing them off and doing them. She, she gets a lot done. And so one of her items was Steve, question mark. And uh, so the, you know, the medicine kind of finds us where we are. And so she got answers to those five things, which she'd taken them to her therapist. Those were vexing questions, losing her faith. I mean, they were, they were serious life questions. And so she showed me, she wrote it down and showed me the answer she got to question Steve question mark. The answer was Steve loves me as much as he can period. 
it's not enough. Mm. And so at the time we both were like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not a, she didn't say this, but we both kind of figured I'm not a complete individual. I don't have the capacity to love her as much as she wants to be loved as much as she should be loved. You know, what I think neither of us realized at the time is I, I couldn't love anyone fully. And so we're that like, really okay, what has to do with your example with your father kind of being absent. You didn't see somebody maybe doing that so that you know how to replicate that. Do you think? It, it probably. I mean, you know, I had some, yeah. I mean, people, people who I loved, they weren't there for me as a kid. Right. And so, you know, again, people who I love, they scare the fuck out of me. Mm-hmm. And, and so Sarah and I figured, okay, Steve, question mark, you know, that I, I love her as much as a canvas, not enough. And so we would talk about, cause she was super wounded at this point. She had kind of brought the ship into port. You know, we, we finished the legislative stuff without blowing up publicly, without our family blowing up in headlines and in a blaze of glory. And so she, at that point, after completing a hellacious task, she's like, I'm tired. I'm hurt. And, and she had two down years where she didn't know what to do to heal. And we were just, okay, what do we do? You know, I'm getting healthier. What does it mean for us? What, what should we do with our relationship? Kids are largely gone. What do we do? And so that's part of the journey of the medicine is just realizing, I mean, me becoming whole, realizing that I don't love anyone, haven't loved anyone fiercely, wholly, that I've only loved partially. So that came in an ayahuasca session and mushroom session. And I'm just sobbing, realizing I've never, I don't know what it means to love. I've never fiercely loved anyone. And so I integrate all of these experiences with Sarah. And um, so she reminded me, she said, do you remember what I got in my first one? That Steve loves me as much as he can. It's not enough. And we realized, oh, I just don't know how to love. I don't, what does this mean? So just trying to learn to love more. And then, uh, you know, had a ceremony that just was off the hook. It was crazy. It was just, well, I'll go ahead and tell you. Um, it was just like, eight hours of nonstop sex in my mind. And uh, so then I purged and I threw up. And it's, I think at that point, my brain changed. That the wiring changed that I realized, oh, wow. I have been misinterpreting things. I mistake sex for connectivity. And what I subsequently learned is for intimacy that I want intimacy with people and, you know, women who love me, it's like, okay, so when do we have sex? What, what does this mean? You know, because again, it's not seeing women, it's a shallowness. It's like, cause that's what I was saying to Sarah after this. I'm like, I'm like, you know, I think I really 
connect with women, but there's this thing that gets in the way. And so she said, Steve, you connect with humans. She said, you just do. And with men, it's just not an issue. It doesn't come down to sex. You're just super affectionate. I mean, all my friends, I just, I kiss them. I grope them. You know, I, I'm just, we just love each other fiercely and, and it's no big deal, but there's this barrier with women like, well, do we, do we have sex now? Cause isn't that the point of women? Right. I mean, they're the womb they're the, And so I was just denying the divinity of women who I loved, who wanted to be close to me. And so, you know, and I'm just talking, Sarah and I just are having these great communications where I'm talking about the two women that I had these affairs with that I'm just, I mourned them. I'm really sad that I still could have had this lifelong relationship with two wonderful women, but I fucked it up because I came incomplete misconstruing what things could have been, what they should have been. And so I denied myself real connection, real intimacy. So I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm covering a lot of ground in a short amount of time here. I'm sure it feels like rambling, but these are, you know, months, weeks, these are many different ceremonies that I'm trying to tie into one narrative. I hope it's not too rambly, but well, you know. let me, I, I'd like to ask a question about love. So, yeah. so what, what did you, what did you learn about what it means to love and what it means to have true intimacy? And, and you don't have to give me the Dallin Oaks uh, three point list, but something close to that. Like what, what is it, what does it mean to love? Um, so I'll, uh, I'll tell you a story involving Christine Sinquist. Right. Um, so when I got out of the legislature, I was on uh, a board that dealt with uh, restaurants and it dealt with alcohol. And the legislature uh, was passing an alcohol reform bill. Now, the reason they were doing it is because they had this thing that you couldn't see people mix drinks because that was going to corrupt the youth of Athens. And so um, that was called the Zion curtain and they were getting a lot. The church moves when it is embarrassed. And so it didn't like that. Everyone was calling this the Zion curtain. It had to end that. So that's the reason it wanted to reform the alcohol laws. And, you know, as much as I say, I love the church, love what it did for me, love people who are in the church and, and people who have graduated the church in the political arena. And I think this is largely because of Marty. You cannot believe a word it says. It is the most dishonest player on Capitol Hill. And so what I realized is it was feeling pressure and it needed to move. And so the leader of our group, dear friend, um, she was sitting at the table with them, believing what they were saying, that they were going to fix it later. They were going to do this, that, and the other. And so I'm just pulling my hair out. I'm like, you cannot believe a word it says. You have the advantage in this. They need the term Zion Curtain to go away. Don't capitulate. Don't give on these things for promises because they're not going to deliver on those. Those aren't promises. Those are lies. 
And so I was in DC when this was kind of going through the house. And so, uh, she said to me, you know, I called her, said, don't, don't, don't. And so she said, Steve, why do you think you're the only person who gets this? And so I, I, I said, well, I do think I'm the only person on the planet who has shoved a bill down the church's throat. I said, I do know some things here. And so, you know, that just escalated. And so, you know, I, I'm basically like, look, I love you, but to hell with this, man. I'm, I'm not, I can't do it. And so I got off that board and I'm so ashamed of that because she was in the trenches doing her best and the fog of war, when you're taking on the church and you have these, the most skilled liars in Utah telling you something and she just felt so alone And yeah, I think my points were right. They were valid, but I was just so incensed that she wasn't going along with what I was saying. And, and, if people are thinking, wow, that sounds sexist, patriarchal, I'm sure it was. And so that's kind of who I was, you know, that, that I, I was right. I still think I was right about the thing, but the thing didn't matter as much as the relationship. I didn't love this person like she needed to be loved because I thought it was about the issue. Fast forward with some experience with the medicine, with some lessons on what love is, lessons on the value of other human beings, I'm helping Christine with plant medicine. And our experience would not have been what it was had I been the person I was just a year or two before, that I was more capable at that point of loving Christine, which meant that I saw her and I saw how alone she was when people were abandoning her and the cause. And because I loved her, I'm just like, what do you need? <laughs> you know, yes, I've spent 16 years in this body. I have taken on the church and beat it. I do know some things but I am your servant. What do you need? And so that's what love is. It becomes more about the other person than about me. And so that's how I present myself much more these days. I'm sure I still have a ways to go where it's when I interact with someone, it's what does this person need? Because I'm whole, I'm good, I am solid what I need out of this is to take care of this person. So to me, that is what I have discovered and what I continue to discover. That's long. All of these stories are long. I hope they're worth something. <laughs> they're incredibly yeah. powerful. Yeah. I think they, um, they shed a light on human connection. And, and honestly, Glenn, I did feel so alone and abandoned when Steve 
just just to give you context on what was going on in my life in 2016, as Steve was leaving um, the Senate, was a big, huge year on the Hill for I think him and me. That's when we were trying to push plant medicine. My my interaction with Steve was first the pat on the head in 2014 that whole plant cannabis is never going to happen in Utah. 2016, two years later, my next interaction with Steve is, hey, let's go have a shot in my office. It was the last night of the session. And then two years later, I am just broken and the church is about to just destroy us and, and the patients and everything we fought for. And this new Steve was there for me. And it was, it's been quite a journey to have that love and that connection from somebody as a mentor, a brother, it's just been such, I don't know other word I've been trained so long, but it has been such a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and you look at the dynamics of both of these situations. Uh, I'm dealing with two powerful, competent women who are in, in these, both of these battles over alcohol and then over cannabis. They're the only woman in the room. They have all of these men who, who are just against them, against their cause. In, in the one scenario, I just become another man who's telling her she's screwing it up. You know? And, and I think that that's what happens when you don't see women. And, you know, then I see Christine. She's the only woman there. And that's why I said, this is... This is as much sexism as it is about cannabis. If you were a man, you'd be treated differently. And so, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna swing the sword. I'm 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 here with you. And and you know, I threw a lot at it and and lost a lot, you know, relationships because I was standing up for my friend, someone who I love, and it doesn't really matter any of those things that I lost because they were, they weren't to lose them over this. They weren't worth having. I remember it, you calling me and you were worried about losing your job over this. And, I, and that was a moment that I was like, Oh my heavens, I can't believe that we are in this situation together. It's when I felt the most love and the most protected that somebody was out there on the battlefield with me, risking their all for what we believed was right. And, I don't think I had had experienced that in my life to have that kind of friendship, love and devotion to well, be, no. go ahead, sir, to, to be out there. There was just very few of us left on that field. And it was a wonderful energy that came in. Steve came in horns blazing and everything like we're going to get it past the finish line and, and not just past the finish line. You've been there for the past two years as, Everything we said was going to happen has unfolded. The corruption, patients being hurt, and it's been so hard for me not to keep doing. And we do keep doing. We do keep doing things, and we do keep exposing things. But I don't think I could have made it without that. I really don't, Steve. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think that I did lose my job over this. It, it never was a good fit. And, you know, ultimately, I walked away from it just because it was an unwinnable solution, but situation. But yeah, you, you take on the church in Utah, you don't do it without consequences. 
Yeah. So, so let me, let me hear your uh, Deva and Goliath story, Steve, when, when you uh, took on the Mormon church and, and uh, like, w- when was this, what was the issue and some of your roadblocks, how did you succeed? Okay. So um, Brandy Balkan, who was running Equality Utah at the time, she drove down to St. George. So four hours from Salt Lake to meet with me to tell me why the state should pass legislation prohibiting discrimination against gay people in housing and employment. And uh, I listened to her. I said, thank had you. This, had this been happening, that there, there was a lot of discrimination that was happening due to um, sexual orientation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, people who felt they couldn't come out at work because they knew that people around them, people in other work situations had been fired because they were gay or trans something. So uh, I said, you know, thanks. I'm, I'm with you, Brandy, but my constituents, they aren't. And so I think that's my job is to do their will have a nice trip home. And um, so, you know, a year or so later, my daughter Zella is going into her senior year of high school at Dixie high. And uh, I said, what, what are you going to do this year? And she said, well, I'm going to do debate. I'm going to be president of the gay straight Alliance. Um, I think I want to do, I'm like, hold on, go back. And so she said, are you asking if, if I'm gay? And I said, well, yeah, I guess that's one of the questions. Tell me what this is, why? And, So she said, I'm an ally and I see my friends be bullied. They get bullied all the time and I want to stick up for them. I think that's the right thing to do. And I said, you know, God bless you. You've always had this sense of justice. You've you've always been a warrior for the underdog. I love that. Do you need to be president? Because that's going to give me some some grief in politics. I said, if you do need to be president to make this happen, that's great. Cause I love you so much more than this temporary gig. Um, but if you don't need to be president, that's great too. And so she said, okay, I'll think about that. You know? And, and so I tell that story to some people and they're going, God, what an asshole father. No, we're a political family. And so you know, she, that conversation we've talked about it, that wasn't offensive to her at all. This is how political families do it. And, uh, so she came back to me a couple days later. She said, I'm going to be president. I need to be. And I said, great, let's do the hell out of this. And, uh, so then a constituent, Marta, she sent me an email just telling me how Zella was a complete piece of shit. Obviously, Sarah and I were, as parents, too, you know, this was horrible. It was sinful. Um, in, in, in reaction to your daughter becoming the president of the Gay Straight Alliance at, at the school? Right, right. Mm. And so that was the grief that I knew was going to come my way. Mm. But I didn't know what my reaction to it would be. I misconstrued yeah. that. And so Marta, her, her intent was to move me, and she did. She moved me in the opposite direction where reading that email, rereading the email, I realized, oh, this is just hatred. 
this is pure hatred and bigotry. You know, and again, how did I not know that before? A lot of my life is missing stuff that's right in front of my face. But reading her email, I'm like, wow, this is just hatred. And so I'm like, okay, I need to re-examine where I am on this. But then I saw my daughter who, uh, she's, she is born a unicorn. And so it's tough for a unicorn in St. George, Utah, you know? And um, so she didn't have tons of friends because Zella is different and she's magical. And, you know, some people didn't see that. A lot of people didn't see that magic, but, oh my God, the gay straight Alliance that would come over to our house, all of those beautiful, fantastic, wonderful kids they would just love so hard on my Zella and she would love so hard on them. I didn't know who was gay. I didn't know who was lesbian. I didn't know who was anything. I didn't know who's ally. I just knew that these were great kids. And I realized, Oh, I'm a bigot that if I knew someone was gay, even, you know, I mean, I, Never in my life did I did I try to make things more difficult on anyone because of sexual orientation, gender identity. But that's far from being a friend. That's far from being human. Mm. So even my friends who were gay, I'd be like, well, he's gay and he has great musical taste he's really smart. And, but that was the first thing, you know, it's like, wow, this person's gay. Um, well, that's, that's bigotry. Right. And seeing these kids with my daughter, no, all I saw was kids who love my daughter. I saw them as humans first. And so, um, 2013, uh, during the session, Brandy Balk and Equality Utah came to me kind of desperate. She said, today is the last day to file a bill. We thought we had a sponsor to run, and they wanted a Republican sponsor by this point. That was the way they figured they would pass it. I didn't even ask. Is that, you were a Republican? Yeah. Okay. Are you and still? So, uh, I just disaffiliated uh like two weeks ago mm, okay i can't take it anymore i you know i believe in a lot of the things republicans talk about but they don't believe them so i don't want to be part of this um so um she said we we thought we had a republican sponsor he backed out will you run the bill i said absolutely and so she was, she was, that was the extent of our conversation. I said, I will. I don't know a thing about it, Brandy. I'm going to use all the wrong words. I'm, I need to, you're going to have to get me up to speed. She said, I'd love to do it. And uh, so that was the ride of a lifetime. That is, you know, so that was before I found plant medicine, but that really was life changing to me. Um, 
that helped open my heart and open my mind and realize that I really was seeing the world in humans or I wasn't seeing them. You know, again, my bit about seeing women. I didn't see LGBTQ people because I, it jumped out at me, their sexuality. You know, I don't care anymore. I just see, I don't, I don't give any shits what someone's sexuality is. It's not an issue to me. Um, but so that first year, uh, we managed to get it out of committee, which that was this huge success. That's what we wanted to do. I saw some really profiles in courage, profiles of courage by some of my fellow senators. I saw cowards and liars out of some others. Um, but it really was this phenomenal ride. And so the next year, I'll just keep walking you forward. You can edit this however you want. And so, yeah. And, and I, and I'm curious, like, what kind of opposition did you have from the church? Yeah. What, what did they do? Um, they just whispered in senators ears of what could happen, what couldn't happen. And so, uh, they were completely controlling the strings on this. And so, yeah, they ran a second bill. They ran a second bill to undermine well, advocates bill. We're not there yet. Okay. Sorry. Got too we're excited. not there yet. So okay. I was kind of playing by their rules because that's what everyone did up to that point. Yeah. You can't take on the church. You can't call it a liar. You can't. So 2014, that's where, uh, judge Bob Shelby, um, the extraordinary, brilliant Bob Shelby, um, wrote his opinion on Kitchen v. Herbert that was the first domino to fall after the Supreme Court's uh, Defense of Marriage Act mm -hmm. and Prop 8 opinions. So when those opinions came out, they didn't really mention the 14th Amendment um, Equal Protection Clause. So this whole time I'm working with Cliff Roski, this constitutional genius um, law professor out of the U. And so we just had some fun conversations where he said, a judge will know what to do with this. This is an equal protection decision. And I'm like, how so Cliff? They don't mention it. It's not even in there. So sure enough, Shelby, he saw that hook and he hung his opinion on it, uh, saying that, um, uh, same-sex marriage was the law of the land in Utah. And that was the first domino that really fell after those Supreme Court cases. And Shelby authored such a great opinion. His reasoning was so solid that that really helped with the subsequent cases. But that was in December. And so uh, that just made things all sorts of topsy-turvy for the upcoming January session. And there the lawyers for the church. Oh, I'm sorry. State of Utah. Um, they hired the state hired. Are you, are you, are you saying that there's no difference between the Mormon church and the, and the state of Utah? Uh, no, I'm not saying that broadly. Actually people, some people would be surprised at how little the church has to do with day to day administration of the state and most laws. But brother, when it comes to, 
cannabis, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to marriage, it is 100% the church. Mm. Legislators will not act unless they know they're in compliance with the church. And so, you know, the church was scared because they put so much firepower into fighting gay marriage. And they knew that, you know, you heard all the narratives. This was, this was the end of the world if we had gay marriage. And so the attorney for that, the special counsel that the state slash church um, hired came in and said, look, we don't want any show of animus by things that are said. So any gay bill, uh, you know, you shouldn't run it. So I'm like, what the hell's a gay bill? I mean, what are you talking about? And uh, so, you know, this was enclosed. I, I just have to stop you for a minute because it's so that you know how my, my mind works, Steve. You, you say, what is a gay bill? I go straight to those like Saturday morning schoolhouse rock. And I want to create a little parody of I'm just a gay bill. I'm only a gay bill. I am only a gay yeah, bill. Yeah, like the, the, the wheels are turning now. I don't know if I'm going to do anything with it, but I love Looking that. magical on Capitol Hill. <laughs> oh, my. Um, but so, um, you know, they weren't going to give my bill a hearing that year. And so... Uh, I knew there was no way around that. So what I did one Friday is I held a press conference right in front of the closed Senate doors, the main doors. And so I said, this is not how American democracy works. We don't blow up in the streets. We take our toughest issues to our policymaking legislative bodies and we hammer them out. We address them. We disagree fiercely in this forum yet on this one we're running away from the toughest policy issue out there look at these closed doors we are closing the door to this tough issue because we're afraid of it Mm. and so you send in blue notes to talk to senators and so on a blue note i wrote here sb 100 that senate bill 100 which was its number at the time and taped it to the door And that was a Friday. So I came back on Monday and the doors were blue. They were covered with blue notes. Everyone had come up to the Capitol, posted some note here, SB 100, or their story on several notes. And the walls were covered with blue notes. It was just phenomenal. And so we have. I I, I need you to explain this for me. So this is this is part of the way that that. Senators communicate with others is putting a blue note on a door. No, you oh, don't. Your constituents. No, 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 no. no. So uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Steve. No, you go ahead, Christine. You send in more blue notes than I have. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of blue notes before. I've heard of blue so, balls, but not blue notes. <laughs> um, so in the House and the Senate, there are two different colored notes. Um, the blue represents the Senate. So when I would bring patients up to talk to their legislator, you know, their legislator, We'd figure out who their legislator was and you'd send in a note saying, I would like to speak to you about a certain bill or a concern I have about a bill or please don't vote this way. And then you usually give the reasons why. And that's how constituents can engage with our elected officials. And so Steve being a Senate basically put up a sign of, hey, the the entire Senate needs to hear this. Please come out and talk to us, the the people about this. So so you're you're soliciting like 
patient stories or people's constituent stories. I like, no, what Steve. Right, right. That, that's what Steve was doing there. Steve, it was symbolic. Go yeah. ahead, Steve. It was very it's, symbolic. It's, it's symbolic because we go out, we get those blue notes. And if you're a senator who cares at all, you go out. You do. You know, especially if it's your constituent. I mean, for me, someone drove four hours to come to the state capitol to talk to me. I'm going to go out and talk to him. Mm. And so you're just you're kind of a no good senator if you don't respond to the blue notes. Mm -hmm. And so that was my point is, you know, here are all the blue notes in the world and we're going to cower. We're going to hide from this issue. This is not how we operate. Mm -hmm. And so, then the people responded and they agreed. And that's what the beautiful thing was. So we held a mock hearing that in the. This, the Capitol cafeteria one night, we said, come up and tell your stories. We want to hear them. And so, you know, the, so I was kind of taking on the legislature at this point. And, um, but, you know, that's kind of always who I was. This wasn't different is mm -hmm. I always had an independent streak and um, I'm just going to fight hard for a bill. And if you are against it, then you better fight hard too. I mean, you know, so, so we held this hearing and it was touching. It was great. The stories, they were very powerful. Um, but um, we didn't get anything to go that session because the church didn't want anything to happen. So before the 2015 session, I'm getting perfunctory calls from newspapers. And that included the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, you know, I'm sure they had the responsibility, you know, call Utah, see if anything is going to happen in this red state on LGBTQ rights. And they expected me to say, you know, we're going to fight and we're going to. But at this point, I flipped the script. The script that I'd been handed wasn't going to pass this legislation. You know, acting like the church wasn't behind the curtain, pulling the strings was going to allow the church to stay behind the curtain and pull the strings. Mm. So what I told those reporters is I said, I have no idea. I have no control over this. And they're like, oh, <laughs> you, is it leadership? Is it? I said, no, 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 no. We have 104 legislate, legislators. None of us have any control over this. This is entirely the Mormon church. They decide whether this bill will go forward. They decide whether it will pass. People know that their instructions are to not pass this. So if the church does nothing, it won't pass. And, and so those big newspapers, all three were like, are, are we on the record? <laughs> so I'm like, I'm like, yeah, we're 100 percent on the record. And so, you know, they're next. So I said, I said, here's the lobbyist for the church. Here's his phone number. Um, give him a call. And so ask him if I'm going to pass my bill because he knows I don't. And so. You don't know how the inner workings go. You know, hopefully, hopefully Mormon leaks uh, reveals this to me at some point. Mm -hmm. But I think that played a part because the church will only move when it's getting bad press, when it's mm -hmm. embarrassed. Not to do the right thing in the political arena, just only when it's embarrassed, which means it wants to release pressure. It still doesn't want to do the right thing. It just wants the bad press to go away. Mm -hmm. So the second day of that session, 2015 session, 
I start hearing rumblings that the church is going to support my bill. Um, okay, this is weird. And so the next day they're going to have a press conference. So they had a press conference saying that they were supporting it. Um, and the press release had all sorts of typos, grammatical errors. That's not how the church operates, right? So they were, they were doing things on the fly. I don't know what those internal conversations were. So I was in uh, Democrat Senator Jim DeBacchus's office. And uh, let me add, this is DeBacchus's bill. This is the community's bill that my name happened to be on because they needed a Republican sponsor. So mm-hmm. I want to, you know, yeah, I passed the bill with my name on it, but they're the ones who bled and really fought for this. You know, and they would remind me that at times, Steve, we appreciate the help. These are our lives that yeah. we've, we've been paying a price in the trenches. And so I always want to respect them. Glenn, just so you understand, I, at the time, I believe Jim was the only gay legislator, but he was not running the bill. That's, mm-hmm. So when he says that when Steve says this is belongs to him, he knows that the way the state functions, that Jim couldn't run it, that, that Steve had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted for your, your audience to understand. Yeah, thank is, you. Is it because they would have thought that it was a personal thing for Jim? Well, he's a Democrat. And he's, he's a Democrat. He's yeah. tribal. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so very tribal. So I'm in his office. We're watching the church's uh, press conference, and they said uh, we are for uh, non-discrimination in employment and housing, and we're both like yes. And they said we are for public accommodations laws, and so Debacus, he's like yes. I'm like they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They don't even know what that means. Because, I mean, of course, they're not for public accommodations. They're still not. And so they just they didn't they didn't even know the language at this point. They just knew that they were in a bad PR situation and wanted to make it go away. Mm -hmm. And so this is the bit this gets us to the part of the story where Christine is talking bad about incrementalism. Um, And so remember Christine and I, we met basically on a disagreement Mm -hmm. that I was the Senate sponsor for CBD and she wanted whole plant. And so she and some of her people, they were not happy with me on that. We disagreed on how it should happen. Should it happen incrementally or all at once? And so, you know, in that one, my, my thinking was we need to destigmatize this a little and this is the way to do it. Let's start here. And I never was, I never agreed to anyone that this is as far as it would go. Now I've subsequently learned that other people were making those representations and I, I can see that CBD would would be as far as they wouldn't go whole plant. Right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Right. But so, you know, to my mind, incrementalism was the right way at that point, but on this one, on, uh, uh, non-discrimination Senator DeBacchus who he started Utah Pride he he started Equality Utah I mean Jim is the hero I mean you know you probably shouldn't ever say it's one person 
but whatever list you do in Utah, Jim has to be on that for, mm-hmm. for LGBTQ advances. Mm-hmm. And so um, Jim and I disagree. Uh, after the church said it was for it, it was doing, by this point, I realized it was completely dishonest in the political arena. So what it was saying is we want this to be a standalone bill. We don't want it in the rest with the rest of the code that actually talks about housing and employment, non-discrimination. And so I was saying, no, whatever you do to us, you do to the NAACP, you do to the Anti-Defamation League. They fought more rodeos than they, they've been in more rodeos than we have. Whatever you do to us, you do to them. Either it's in the same section of the code or I'm not running it. So they're like, okay, fine. We don't need it. And Jim was furious with me. He, he's like, Steve, this is my life. You don't understand. If we can pass something, that is a victory. It is a first start. And so I said, Jim, they're only doing this because they're scared. They're feeling pressure. We, they're already pregnant. Remember, they said they want the legislation. Mm-hmm. If the legislation doesn't pass, then they failed to get something they said they want in the state of Utah. We have pressure on them. We can't, I'm not going to run it unless we have a real bill that's in with this other section. Because things happen so fast legislatively that if, if this were a standalone piece of the code, there would be some language thrown in at the end that it, it just upsets everything. It would have been a hollow promise. There would have vented steam pressure that they were feeling, and it wouldn't have actually provided protection for the LGBTQ community. So remember, a lot of politics, you have serious passionate disagreements with people you're working with. And uh, so the church was fine with that. They said, okay, we're not going to, fine. We won't, Steve's unreasonable. We won't pass the bill this year. And so I said, okay, but you have to understand, I'm fine with that too, because I'll continue to beat you up in the press. I will continue, I'm not going to stop. I will continue to lay blame at your feet. And now you've given me even more evidence to do it. So I think the way this really works out is I'm fine with it and you're not, but you decide what you want to do. And so days were dragging on, weeks were dragging on. We're a 45 day session. And so we hit the point where we're not going to pass the bill because there's just not enough time to work through something this complex. And so Jim is increasingly frustrated with me. And so there was this one weekend that it was clear if we didn't have pretty much agreed upon language by Monday, um, the bill wasn't going to go forward. So we had the church called. We had a meeting at church headquarters that Sunday night. It was Debacus, um, Troy Williams, who is the great leader of Equality Utah by this point, Cliff Roski, me, um, and then a couple folks from the church and uh, their one idiot lawyer. And so uh, it was, I call this meeting the Boy Scout Holocaust um, because the conversation got to the point where they said, okay, we need the Boy Scouts of America carved out of this, you know, 
So I said, why, why do the Boy Scouts need the ability to discriminate based on sexual orientation, um, based on gender identity, sexual orientation? And so he said, well, you know, they, they, they just do. And so we were saying, look, there's a very specific case on the Boy Scouts. They don't need to worry about this. Well, we, we need them in or it can't go. And so I said, this is just ridiculous to put them in. So this idiot lawyer said, there is not another group in the history of the world that has been discriminated against like the Boy Scouts of America. <laughs> so, so I said, I said, you know, Jews come to mind. And so, so then he said, Oh, Oh, you're going to go Hitler on this one. I'm like, well, no, wait, no, wait. I, you said, then I, I think I'm going to go. And uh, so, so the, you know, this was, we stayed for hours longer, but we left the building. So I'm standing on. Uh, hey, can uh, I, can I just ask for a point of clarification? Yeah. I, so, so this, this boy scout issue, cause this, this is before the church separated themselves right. from, from yes. the boy scouts. And so is, is what they were trying to do was uh, allow legal discrimination within their own boy BSA chapters that were part of their wards that if, if, you know, they wanted to discriminate against somebody for their sexuality, they could. Yeah. I mean, to protect you, that. Have, you know, remember morally straight is uh, one of the tenets of, of boy scouts. And that was put in it's, it's, you know, anti-gay thing and you, you can't have, Mm. gay boys and the boy scouts well i guess if you're defining morals as sexual morals and straight as gender <laughs> then, well then, i think yeah, that's why there's... it went in that that was how the boy scouts <laughs> were defining it in the church <laughs> yeah. so um i remember I, I, I know some pretty morally straight gay gay guys is all i'm saying yeah i mean absolutely <laughs> absolutely but the church was defining it by being gay you obviously yeah. were not morally straight yeah uh -huh. But so uh, late night, I'm just standing out on South Temple by our cars with Senator DeBacchus out across the street from church headquarters. And uh, I said, we're done, Jimmy. I said, we're not we're not going to get it done this session. I don't I don't know how we can. And, uh, you know, remember, just like Christine and I disagreed, but we didn't blow up our relationship. We're just like, OK let's find a place we can work together. DeBacchus and I, we were at odds over whether we should go forward with, you know, a bill that wasn't so robust, whether we should take an incremental step or just solve the problem of housing and employment discrimination. And, uh, but of course we kept our relationship. We have a deep love for each other and, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to blow up over that. And so, uh, I said, I said, I'm not going to run it being just something to release steam. And by this point he realized that's after this conversation, he realized, yeah, that's all they want to do is just release pressure on themselves. They don't want to pass through protections. And so he said, okay. And, uh, so went home and then the next morning, like 6am, my phone's ringing and it's DeBacchus. And he said, get up to the Capitol. We've had some movement. And uh, so sat down with that same lawyer who obviously had been muzzled a bit and uh, <laughs> sat down with Marty's predecessor. And they clearly had their marching orders 
to pass a bill to be reasonable. And so we had conversations and we showed them, look, if you truly want to protect, this is how you do it. And uh, this is a responsible way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so to back this, I'm like, what happened? And uh, so, you know, I think I was right to say we want the whole thing. Yeah. But again, this is DeBacchus's bill because if I'd been left to that, I, it wouldn't have passed. He worked some magic. He wouldn't tell me what his magic was. Hmm. Um, but he told me a few years later that he called uh, Elder L. Tom Perry hmm. and he said, you know, you and I have always got along. I believe you when you say you want to pass a bill. Here's the situation. And so uh, Elder Perry, I think, sent the orders. Okay, we're going to be reasonable on this. So we, we passed the bill. And and can I ask a question? Because I remember, uh, Christine, when we were talking um, about your experience, at one point you had been told, don't compromise with the church. Don't don't negotiate with the church. Was that Steve that told you that? And was it no. this, this experience that mm -mm. kind of, or that, that was something completely different? That was uh, Mark Madsen, mm, okay. Senator Mark Madsen. So Mark was in the Senate at the same time Steve was, and he was running the cannabis bills. I was working with him on the Hill. And when I sat down with the church in 2018, this is the year of the initiative, they wanted to kill the initiative. This was mm. in June. And I had told them we already qualified. Everybody gets a chance to vote on it now. That's not the stage of the game that we're at. And um, they wanted, you know, they spelled out exactly. They sent me an email and spelled out exactly what they were going to do. The, my only person that I had dealt with the church in, in that moment that I had known was Mark. Mm. But Mark's in Peru. So we sent a copy of the email to him and said, what do we do? And he sent me out back like five, six inches of yeah. email texts in, in bold caps. Yeah. Don't compromise with the church. Yeah. You're in a position of strength. This yeah. is basic art of war. I mean, yeah. and when you're, and at that point he was my mentor. He was the legislator I had been trying to work with for several years, trying to get cannabis passed through the means we're taught, the little bill on the hill. Um, that's, he was, he was my person. And so when my person who knows these people is telling you don't compromise yeah. by God, that just reinforced everything in my being that was telling me not to compromise. Yeah. And so which, when, which is also where Steve was at too, right? Like you, exactly. you recognize Steve, that the church had already made this public statement that we want this thing to pass, but then they were trying to stick things in it that we're reducing the efficacy of what it would do. And you're saying, no, nah, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to let the church weaken this bill. Is that right? right? So Am I understand that right. right. So Christine, right. let me, why don't you carry that story forward? Me, your story. My, Oh, well, the story about how we, okay. when okay. we came together. So Mark tells me don't do that. And then, um, months go by and it's at the end of the summer and, Steve, I think, is approached by people who were my allies, asked or told, hey, you know, the church just came out. They held this press conference in August and they wanted to be in talks with the church and compromise. Um, and Steve told them, no, don't do that. I was never told that that's what was going on behind the scenes. My allies were doing this 
without my knowledge. When I went in and sat with the church months before, I told my allies exactly what was going on. They begged me not to compromise with the church. I didn't compromise the church. The whole point in me being there was getting their buy-in and respecting them as players in our state. I'm not here to kiss the ring. I was coming at them as an equal. And that's the problem is they never viewed me as an equal um, because I wasn't a member, because I was a female, whatever their reasoning was, they knew more than I. And I, the, the situation went really south. Um, they never, Marty never returned my texts. He just went completely cold on me. So I didn't know what to think until right after my Radio West interview, I, I am asked by Connor to please meet with him the next day or have our little team come and meet. And our team came and met with him and he told us that he'd been in talks with the, with the speaker of the house and the church and um, the Senate president and, and they have a bill. And he told me what was in the bill and they were cutting patients um, medication. They were doing all kinds of things where that were ridiculous and made no sense at all. They, there were nonsensical things that they were doing to this legislation. And everybody in the room seemed to be very eager about what was going on because they saw a political move. As a patient, I saw access being denied. I saw restriction. I saw cost. I saw everything horrible about cannabis industry being played out in front of me. Um, and that's when I, you know, I, for 24 hours, I was absolutely in anguish. And I finally reached out to Steve and said, this is what's going on. And he said, what? You didn't know about that? It came to me a month ago almost and told me that this was going on. I thought you were okay with this and this is what is happening. Hell no, we don't compromise. Hell no, we go moving forward. Yeah. And, and he reached out to Jim and those gentlemen both came out. They came out swinging because I, at this point, I had been hiding from the public that my health was deteriorating. The stress of Doing the advocacy from 2012, 2011, when I started on Facebook to then 2018, I was exhausted. I was losing allies who were jumping ship because they saw political expedience um, was the best route to go, the incremental steps. And I'm standing in a different place, a different perspective. I'm trying to stand in a place of what is right. Yeah. And that's, yeah. and Steve had already been through this and he knew, and he, he spoke my language. We resonated, he got it. And I needed that. I needed both those gentlemen to help me get through the, that moment. So it helps when you know who you're dealing with and, you know, having dealt with the church on uh, the non-discrimination legislation and then the next year, hate crimes legislation, mm -hmm. I knew it very well in the political arena and I knew that it was the most dishonest player on Capitol Hill. And, and by this point, I'm going to say that it was even incapable of telling the truth mm. because it so devalued the truth. And so when it said, when I, when these two fellows said, we're going to sit down with the church, they want to compromise. I knew that was a lie that it didn't want to compromise. It, it wanted to release steam. Mm -hmm. And so I, I told them, I said, I said, you guys, if 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 you go in and agree that the table should be round, 
they're going to hold up a piece of paper and say, we've reached a compromise. You don't need to vote for this initiative. And because it was clear the proposition was going to sail through at this point, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, no, the church can kill it. I'm like, there's no way the church is going to kill it unless we go in and help them swing the axe. And that's all they want you to do. Now, I thought those two guys were just being naive and foolish, but, you know, they both got rich off this since then. So who knows? Maybe they're geniuses. Mm -hmm. But so I told Christine, I said, I'm happy to help. But, you know, if you're going to go and sit down with the church as part of these compromise discussions, then there's nothing I can do for you because I think you've already lost at that point. So if you, if, if that's your call, great, but I don't have anything to offer at that point. And uh, so, you know, we did speak the same language on that and uh, thank heavens, um, you know, she didn't sit down with them because I, I don't think she would have been effective at that point. And a lot of her great work was carrying <laughs> Uh, prop to barely over the finish line because it really was the church's best tool to say, because you saw, we love compromise. We hate uh, division and anger. So we've all agreed. Both sides have agreed. There's a better way than the proposition. You don't need to vote for the proposition. And so had Christine been in those negotiations, she just looked like she didn't get her way and was just sour grapes. And, but having, always been outside of that and not being a puppet or a shill um she was able to carry it across the finish line but then also has done a lot of very significant work after the fact of pointing out these are the problems these are the things will prevent that will prevent it from working and she's done a lot of great work to improve it since uh it got hijacked by the legislature and she will continue to do great work Well, did, did I, did I hijack your, your story? Sorry, about, uh, no, <laughs> when, when I, when I asked that question, you, you, you were talking about uh, you, you and Jim, you'd, you'd come in on the Monday, Jim made the call to Elton Perry. The mm-hmm. church was saying, yeah, we're going to move forward with the bill being passed. Is there, is there more to wrapping up that? I mean, of course there are more details, but no, that was it. You know, okay. it's, it's exactly like I had told the New York times, Washington post and wall street journal if the church wants this legislation, it will pass. And so I didn't pass a bill. The church passed the bill. What I did is I made sure that it was a good bill. And so we had a lot of wrangling and thank God we had the NAACP and anti-defamation league at that point, watching the bill with us, uh, providing great input and, and the church at that point, it, had to do the responsible, honest thing and pass meaningful legislation. Yeah. And it was a huge victory. It, the church did not, you know, they didn't want this to happen. No matter what narrative they, they spin, they were, they were dragged to this point, kicking and screaming. Then we all held up the bill and celebrated. Look what we have done. Mm. You know, part of that, we was forced to do it. But they did try to undermine it with a second bill, didn't they? That's where we got the religious freedom. Or am I confusing? Oh you? my God. Yeah. Unbelievable. So the bill that we passed <laughs> yeah. was 296. Yep. And so the whole time, Jim and I, mm-hmm. even after, you know, we agreed we're going to pass the bill, we're like, 
we kind of feel like there's another script out there mm-hmm. that we don't have. Is mm-hmm. there another bill out there? Is anything going on? And so, you know, the guy who's now Senate president, uh, Senator Stuart Adams, he's like, no, there's, there's no bill. And he actually was, to my knowledge, there's only one bill in the history of Utah that has two actual sponsors. And that was 296 because I needed an adult chaperone um, on that bill. So you have bills with sponsors and co-sponsors, but this is the only one I'm aware of where you have two actual sponsors. Um, So here's my partner. Here's my buddy on uh, 296. I'm like, Hey buddy, feels like there's something else out there. No, nothing. No. And then when the language hits on 297, so yeah, mm-hmm. this is how numbers work. 296, the bill right after it's 297. So obviously, you know, they were done in conjunction. Here's a bill saying that clerks, they, if they have religious objections, county clerks, they don't have to marry gay people. Mm-hmm. We're like, what the fuck? What have we been talking about all the this whole time? time? How does this not relate to what we've done? So at that point, you know, Jim and I were like, okay, to hell with you. We're not passing. Mm-hmm. You guys are so dishonest. So dishonest. You can't even answer an honest question if another bill's out there. You don't incorporate us. And by this point, we look stupid to the human rights campaign, to all of the national uh uh, gay rights organizations they're like you guys are so stupid for thinking you could believe you could trust the mormon church what, what happened with 297 well it, it so at it this point pass? we're like well the part of the story where i am jim and i we pulled the plug at quality utah we're like we don't we don't want any of it we don't trust you you made us look stupid to all the national organizations to the community mm-hmm. to hell with you and so then they're like, oh, no, no, well, we meant to talk with you. Let's talk now. So we actually made 297 a pretty good bill, and we passed them both. 297, mm-hmm. where that ended up is if someone has sincerely held religious beliefs that won't allow them to do it, they need to make sure someone in the office will perform the wedding. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, so they can kind of exclude themselves. I know there's a word for that. But it wasn't yeah. that way. Exonerate themselves, but somebody else right. could come in and do it. So it's not preventing the people from getting married. Right. And yeah, what Christine's saying at first. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. Government, it was government wasn't going to help you with your marriage. Yeah. That's when we had that other clerk, and I don't know, somewhere down south who was, you know, refusing to marry. That was the same year. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember that national can you, story. Yeah, oh, in yeah, Kentucky. That was Kentucky. Yeah. That was yeah. Kentucky. Tara something. Yeah. yeah. We had one in Utah County who, uh, you know, they, they weren't going to do it. The county clerk there, So we, we've been we've been talking, recording for about three hours. We haven't really talked much at all about the Divine Assembly. Do, do you want to tackle that today? Do you want to reschedule and do another time where we talk about that? Um, just checking in with sure. you guys. Yeah, we can do it. I mean, you know, I, I think I can do it. I think I can tell the story well. Uh, rather succinctly. All right, let's go. Tell me about it. So I, when I'm using mushrooms, psychedelics, I enter this mystical state of consciousness that I call the sanctum sanctorum, the holy of holies. And I believe this is where the divine exists. And so 
enter that space and really become one with the universe, receive these tremendous insights into myself, the world around me, a lot of healing. And so I'm thinking, wow, this is as profound an experience as anyone walking the earth has ever had, you know, spiritually speaking. But then I realized, well, other people in the ceremony, they're having similar experiences. So these are experiences that are accessible to everyone. And it's really making me pause. I, I spent a lifetime in a religion, you know, doing all of the things that that religion dictates. I've never, never in that context have I had experiences remotely approaching this. This is so much more profound than, than what I got from that setting. How is this not religion? And so then I'm thinking back to my dear friend, Cr Cliff Roski, who I've been talking about, the lawyer who uh, helped with the equality fight. And remember, a big part of this equality fight is we're fighting against God, registered mm -hmm. trademark, you know, we're fighting against Mormon God. And so Mormon God is swinging some incredible weaponry in the public arena through the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, saying people don't have to bake cakes, they don't have to prepare flowers, they just don't have to serve, they don't have to do anything with same-sex marriages. And so Cliff and I became expert. He probably already was, but we became expert at First Amendment Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so I'm thinking, wow, these are profound religious experiences. Religion protects these kinds of experiences. There really should be religion to protect this. So I told this to Sarah and she's like, no, no, please, no. We we just escaped a religion. Please, no. And I'm telling my friends, mm -hmm. ex-Mormons, and they're like, no, please, no. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, with them, and I love that because that was my first instinct, too. I'm like, no, no. But then we're talking it through. OK, what could good religion be that? you know, doesn't just suck the spirituality and autonomy out of people, but allows for worship. And so we think we've put that together with the divine assembly. Um, I ran it by this attorney, this law professor, Cliff Frosky. So I'm telling it. And so he says, please tell me at the end of this story, you're going to ask me to be your attorney. And uh, so his help was vital in all this. And what we've created is you can consider a platform that brings in First Amendment and RIFRA protections for people to safely and sincerely worship. And they can enter this mystical state of consciousness in various ways. You know, people throughout, the, throughout history have entered that space through prayer, meditation, song, you know, the dervishes uh, by ecstatic dance. And also you can enter it through psychedelics. And in particular, you know, one that has been sacred to me is uh, psilocybin mushrooms. And so filed with the church and as a corporate nonprofit and uh, set it up and 
have invited people to come. We have a website, thedivineassembly.org. Um, we're on Facebook, Instagram as Mushroom Sacrament. Um, we've had two, you know, with COVID, tough to get together. So what we're doing is figuring, okay, mushrooms are connected through the mycelial network. Um, if you've seen the great movie, Fantastic Fungi, yep. um, they talk about the mycelial network, how it is a lot like the internet. We're like, okay, let's worship using the internet. So what we're doing is we will broadcast from different nodes where people are doing different things. Um, you know, Christine, what she has done during the two ceremonies is she'll paint. She's working on her watercoloring. And so I'm working to convince her to be one of the nodes and allow us to broadcast from her space where as people are worshiping in their living rooms with their family, with their closest friends, we can tune in and watch Christine paint. We can watch someone else play music. Someone else can lead us in a meditation. So that's how we're worshiping right now. We're getting ready for a live gathering for the summer solstice, which is June 20th, which happens to be my birthday. Um, so June 2021, um, go out in the desert and uh, have worship ceremony there with lots of music and um, lots of talks, lots of community. So that's part of what we're, what we're after is allowing people to worship. Our one tenet is that people can commune directly with the divine and receive guidance for their lives. So when you have that as one tenet, why do you need any other tenants? If you can receive direct guidance from the divine, why do you care what I think? What do you care how I tell you a life is well lived? You know, let's, let's build each other through testimony, through shared stories, through integration. But whatever my experiences are, they're authoritative to me, but they shouldn't really mean that much to you. Same with your experiences. I'm interested in them, but whatever you encountered of the divine, I don't have to believe that. I don't have to believe that's reality. You know, hopefully I believe, yeah, Glenn had a great experience. Christine had a great experience. That meant something to them. And I'm glad they got something out of it. You know, I, that was cool, but I don't happen to believe that God is a giant squid you know, or whatever it was that gave you that message. That's just how the universe presented to you and was teaching you at that moment. So, so when did you, when did you found the, the church? Was it in 2020? Yeah. Did it in uh, uh, June in July. And you know, it's funny how the world works. Um, so I was working with the university of Utah. And again, I do think that uh battling the church so publicly on cannabis i think that hurt me there big time um so it wasn't that great a fit and plus uh i was doing global stuff for the institution it's not global <laughs> um compared to i'm gonna say since you're in arizona arizona state university is one of the great american universities now it's unbelievable what it's doing including on the global front it, it gets what global is. But so, you know, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, I'm kind of holding back on some of these things because University of Utah is a state institution. I know it will get grief for these things. So I figured, okay, I'm done. 
at the end of June. So that's really when I got rolling on the divine assembly and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm confused what you were doing with the university of Utah. So global ambassador, um, working on global efforts, um, which it's not really that global. So that it wasn't a great fit, but then I think they didn't oh, know. Th- this is with me. as, as cannabis advocacy. Is no, that no, what you're just no. an employee there working mm-hmm. on, on education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Education. Research opportunities for faculty and students abroad, mm-hmm. um, bringing in international students, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now I continue to teach, uh, in the medical school, the division of public health. I teach two courses there on health policy. Um, so I enjoy that. Um, I come and visit on those occasions too. Yeah. Christina's taught in several of my classes. Um, but you know, I'm glad that I'm freed of that full-time employment, uh, because I don't have to worry about, okay, how will this reflect on the university? What will legislators do to retaliate? You know, I kind of have no strings at this point. So that's allowed me to be really bold about the divine assembly. My kids are grown and out of the house and, um, you know, Sarah's completely supportive of this. So I figure this is to have religious sanction. It can mean so much for so many people. You know, Christine and I are do-gooders at heart. And so these therapeutic uses that are coming to the forefront, that's great. It's awesome. I believe in it. But who's it really going to help? It's probably going to help affluent white people, right? Mm -hmm. That anytime you're talking therapy, medicine, licenses, you're carving, you're excluding a lot of the population. Whereas religious protection can protect everyone. And the criteria there, there's some great case law on it where two ayahuasca churches, um, they received judicial sanction. One of them, uh, unanimous Supreme Court decision, looking and saying, okay, what they're doing is safe, and it obviously is sincere. This is religion. DEA, give them back their ayahuasca, help them import it in the future. And so Divine Assembly is wanting to use that case law to provide even a broader area where people can worship the divine using psychedelics. So have, have you had any pushback at all from the, the state of Utah? Mm, no, no, not yet. You know, part of it is we're new or small. I don't know how much on the radar we are. Um, I'm not hiding it. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, reaching out to government agencies saying, Hey, I want you to know, this is what's going on. This is how we're doing it. It is safe. It is sincere. Um, it, I was, my wife and I, Sarah, we walk just about every morning we were walking by the Capitol and, uh, one morning, uh, there was a meeting. And so one Senator pulled up and, uh, you know, was just kind of ribbing me about it, but good natured, about it and saying hey this is awesome i love that you're you know leading out on it so another senator pulled up and said hey i signed up for your church what do we do next really (laughs) yeah 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 so so what what does somebody do if they sign up for your church is there tithing nope no no one's no one's charged any money um so 
it's just on the website, divineassembly.org, thedivineassembly.org. Um, just name and email, mm-hmm. and then they're a member. You know, I think we're born authorized. We're, we're born with permission, so they don't need any kind of blessing or setting apart. Uh, they just affiliate, and then they get the legal protection if they're safe and sincere. So the church is promoting safety, sincerity, any individual user, uh, law enforcement look to see, are they being safe? Are they being sincere? So even the bit about name and email, if people are nervous about that now, case law, freedom of association, those lists, the police could never get, they could never require, but taking on a new name is a venerable religious tradition. So (laughs) if, if someone wanted to make up a name and create an email account, that's fine too. Mm. Could, could you make up a name and an email for someone who is dead? I'm just making um, a joke about the uh, doing, doing, doing proxy. <laughs> wow. We might need to do that. You do, do, do ceremonies for, for and on behalf of <laughs> blank who is dead. <laughs> I'm, I'm often game for bad ideas. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, so how many, how many members do you have at this point? We're at, we're at about 500 now. And, and of those 500, how many of them actually interact with each other as part of a, a larger group or organization? How many of them are just individually doing what they do? I'm going to say a lot more than 500. Um, I'm just blown away by how many people participate in our ceremonies um we we have lots and lots and lots of people tuning in and some of those are going to be by themselves uh Mm -hmm. christine i think you're you've been by yourself painting both Mm -hmm. times uh you know my wife and some daughters have been home they've attended just doing jigsaw puzzles that's how Mm -hmm. they choose to worship but then other nodes, people are saying that, you know, they'll have six, eight, ten people there and tell me stories about what they did during the ceremony. So I don't know what it averages out to per node, as we're calling them. But I think we have uh, a lot of people who are attending this. And when we when we get further developed, when we meet in person, I think our numbers are not that it matters, but I think they're going to go up significantly. Agreed. So how, how do you justify that this is a religion? I mean, great question. What is religion, right? It's, it's something that someone sincerely believes. And so um, the funny thing is, legally, it's the spiritual giants at the Internal Revenue Service uh, and the Drug Enforcement Agency that have a big say in determining whether something is a religion. And so they look to see, do you have a place where you meet? Do you have doctrine? Do you train clergy? Do you proselytize? All of those things. Um, courts, what, what they're really looking at is, what is someone doing? Is this changing someone's life? And so the best I can, you know, the most straightforward answer I can give you is tell you what these two ayahuasca courts were looking at. And again, one being the United States Supreme Court, the other is a an Oregon uh, United States District Court. They look to see what the behavior of the individuals is. 
And in both cases, they found people, these were both Brazilian sects that they had adopted. They looked to see what were the people doing before they joined? What are they doing after they joined? And now remember, if you don't want to bake a cake for someone and say it's your sincerely held religious belief, they're just going to take your word for it. But if you want to use a Schedule One controlled substance, they're going to do a cavity search. Mm. So they look to see <laughs> what other substances are the people using? Uh, how often do they worship? What is their worship like? You know, in one of the cases, someone even learned Portuguese uh, to better participate and learn the songs in Portuguese. So what they saw is people whose lives were governed around this. So what I, you know, you can kind of see this, right? People join a religion and their behavior changes. It should, right? That's why we do this. So what I tell people is what I do is I, and this comes from my friend, John Carlo, my guide, as he was telling me that, uh, you know, some of my past beliefs no longer served me afterwards when I'm telling him the experience, I, he's just so colorful and wonderful. He's just imagine he, he, he's not holding any paper, but he's flipping pages and he's just like going along, like he's reading and he's just disgusted with what he's reading and he's ripping up the pages, wadding them up and throwing them away. And so I said, what on earth are you doing? And, uh, he said, he said, I'm just looking at the contract you've been living by. He said, someone else wrote it. And mm. it, that contract is not yours. I'm going to invite you to really write up a new contract. And so that's what I would show a court. If they wanted to ask about my life, how it's different, then I would say, here are the things that I will do. Here are the things that I won't do. Here are the values that govern my life. This is my creed. This is my religious philosophy. Now, remember, I'm against top-down hierarchical dogma. I've had enough of it. I don't need Dallin Oaks to tell me how to run my life. I don't need to tell anyone how to run their life. If I'm your religious shaman, man, you're doing something wrong. And uh, so what I do is I invite people to create their own contract. What is important to them? If they decide that they're going to enter this mystical state of consciousness what have they learned there what are the insights and so you know my contract is is constantly changing as i learn new insights but this is my doctrine for steve these are the lessons that i've learned you know through this call today through this podcast i've i've seen one or two things differently i'm going to alter my contract hmm. and that is my doctrine that is my religion and so i'm sure courts will say well you can't this isn't a religion. You can't let people create their own doctrine, their own guidepost. Well, that's what I'm doing. And, and yes, it is not puritanical. It is not how other churches do it. But this is how we're doing it. And we're laying out the case of why this is religion. Yeah. So, so one, of the, one of the horrible thoughts that just popped into my head was Ron and Dan Lafferty and you know, that, that whole story about, uh, what, what was that book? Uh, the crack hour book under the banner of heaven, under the banner of heaven. Yeah. The, these, these guys who as fundamentalist Mormons, they believed that God was telling them that they needed to kill their sister-in-law and they went on this, you know, murder spree and, and sort of thing. What, what if something let's like say, that happened? Let's say, let's say her name, Erica Wright. 
Okay. Erica. People always say the Lafferty's rights. We always remember the killers we've made famous. Mm-hmm. We don't remember the victims. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, if, if, if you had a, a node of the divine assembly and there were people who were getting together and they're in this altered state and they start getting some wonky messages and start feeling like, Oh, this is that God's telling us to do this or that, or steal cars or, you know, like uh, other things like that. How would that reflect upon the church? And are there any kind of protections put in place to avoid those kinds of things? Um, yeah, and let me correct myself. They killed Brenda and Erica Lafferty. Brenda, I know Brenda's sister. I know Erica's uh, aunt. She's Erica ran, was the infant. Erica was the yeah, a year old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I ran a bill to repeal the death penalty, and so uh, the sister, the aunt, she was my constituent. She was the first call I made, saying, "Hey, I'm thinking of something crazy. I want your opinion." And so, by the way, she said, run it. She said, this has been a hollow and cruel promise that the state made to us. We have not had a chance to heal and to move on. So she's a big advocate for repealing the death penalty. Um, so the, the thing is, what the Lafferty's did is they said that God had talked to them and other people should follow the things that God told them. Yeah. And that's what we're laying out is if someone says, hey, God told me you should do thus and such or, hey, you need to do thus and such. That's anathema to our foundation. We don't believe in any kind of dogma that anyone has authority over you. We don't believe that anyone should strip your autonomy to tell you what to do. You know, you look at most religions. What do most religions do? They start with these powerful noetic experiences where someone Mm -hmm. sees something amazing but that is religion but then immediately dies because they say everyone else has to believe in what i just saw Mm -hmm. and so in psychedelics that's just not how it should work you do see that sometimes i'm going to say especially in ayahuasca where people are like this is the one true way to do this there's there's not one true way to do this stuff and so you know, what we're saying is, look, you are autonomous. Don't believe that people, other people tell you how to run your life. Figure out how to run your own life. Let's have a lot of help in that guidance. But you are on an autonomous being. What, what, what would you think about? And I, it sounds like the, if there is a creed or an article of faith for the uh, divine assembly, it's to... Uh, respect everyone's experience with the divine. Yeah. I mean, the one tenet is you can commune directly with the divine and receive guidance in your life. And so then we immediately say it it flows from that, that you don't need anyone else to tell you how to live. So yeah, it is. Then we talk a lot about community, which it's about a safe, supportive community. What does a safe, supportive community look like? And those are places. Like the 10 commandments, thou shalt not kill thou shalt not rape thou shalt not you know, steal yeah. like a, any kind of creeds like that to keep people's experience with the divine kind of pointing in that way of healthy safe community well so now you're you're getting into the tougher questions of 
okay, it's great to say that I want to found a safe, supportive community, and then I want to drop back. This this can't be the church of Steve. Mm-hmm. People ask me, are you a prophet? Are you a guide? No, I'm a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. <laughs> you know, I've created something that is legally safe. Now I want others to build on it. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is if people say, yeah, I believe in this. I believe that I can commune with the divine and receive direct guidance and, and that psychedelics can help with that. Psilocybin mushrooms can help. I want to be part of this then come on the platform and how do they find safe guides? How do they find safe integration therapists? Because right now it's pretty damn dangerous. What do people do? What is the current state? Well, they, they, they heard about someone, right? Somebody went to someone. They don't know if this person is good or not. They don't have Yelp reviews, right? (laughs) They just don't know. They go, which is, which that's the situation you go to your local Catholic church, you go to your local Mormon Boy Scout troop, or at least, you know, your Mormon quorum or whatever. These people aren't Yelp reviewed. You don't know if these people are pervs or not. And in the beauty of psychedelics is it gets us in this vulnerable state of consciousness where we're subject to suggestion. We're subject to a lot of things, which means we can be absolutely subject to predation. Yeah. It's a very dangerous, it's a wonderful spot. It's a potentially dangerous spot. So how do we improve on that scenario where people just go to the one guide they heard of because someone said this person's good? And I've, I've been with some bad guides. I know some bad guides who are out there. So part of this, I'm driven by the safe community. How do we improve it? I'm thinking one of the best things that's out there right now is the Yelp review, the Uber mm-hmm. review, review. And so I would like to get to a point where if people want to do, if they're doing Reiki, they're guiding, they're doing integration services, if they say, hey, I would love to help people who are in this psychedelic space, well, okay, go ahead and on this platform, say that you're willing to do that, but safety means you're going to, there's going to be reviews of what you do, and let's go ahead and rate them, one to five, and if they fall below a certain number, then, uh, you know, they fall off the platform. They can't, they can't say, I mean, everyone just sees we're not going to go to these people. That, that almost sounds like by common consent Yes. to have an element of, of common consent in the, uh, divine assembly to, to vet who the, the, the the people are that are the safe guides who are not and that sort of thing. Yes. Well, that's the beauty of the world we live in right now is it's being massively disintermediated that we're getting rid of the middleman. Mm-hmm. So think of all since the three of us have Mormon background. My God, think of all the middlemen that stand between you and salvation or you and the divine. Yeah. My God. I mean, you know, you have you have all the general authorities, you have state presidents, you have bishops, you have all sorts of people that they're the filter by which you reach the divine. Now they would argue, no, you can do it through prayer. You can't. Mm -hmm. Any response to prayer, any experience you have with the divine, it has to conform to what other people say. If it doesn't, then you're on the path to excommunication. Mm -hmm. You're on the path to apostasy, right? Mm -hmm. That's the weird person who gets up in fasting testimony meeting Mm 
that's when my eyes go up and other everyone else, their eyes go down. <laughs> if someone wants to tell you an experience they had with the divine, that's off script. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're going to, they're going to receive, they're going to be co- invited into the Bishop's office to never say that again. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I love that, that we, we live in an age where it is possible for us to be equals and religion has not been disintermediated. The middleman exists in every religion I'm aware of. So wouldn't that be fun to create the world we want to live in yeah. where we can worship directly with the divine and no one is over anyone else yet there's a way that we can build safe community and keep each other safe and secure yeah mm-hmm. that sounds like something worth doing to me yeah agreed it does hmm. all right well so we've, we've been going for three and a half hours said a lot mm-hmm. how, how are you feeling steve i'm there, good there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't um I recovered, recovered a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, here, I guess, is an appeal for anyone who, uh, you know, has, has listened to this. Uh, I do believe that I have built a legally sound platform where people can worship God as they or the divine as they wish. And that includes using uh, controlled one or schedule one controlled substances, if they're safe and sincere. That's basically the extent of what I can do. I'm a lawyer. I don't have many skills other than that. I want people to build on this platform. What, what do people have to offer, you know, that they come with a sincere open heart. They believe they can provide some services for people in this space come build on the platform you know you don't need my authorization you don't need my permission just come build something safe and sincere you know this is an opportunity for people constantly to be defining what this community is how this religious how this religion interfaces with the world down the weapons that you use against yourself you don't need them anymore lay down the weapons that you use against the world we don't need another war put down the weapons that you use against yourself you hi this is hillary matthew ryan carol dashley and i like to play bingo online while listening to infants on thrones you can comment on this episode on the website infantsonthrones.com and if you really like what you hear Give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes and take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts float past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight. Lady.